Fault Lines. Live from the divided states of America, sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, taking down hypocrisy, one lie at a flipping time. In the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess and journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your burning ember in the darkness, your political analyst, Jamal Thomas. Which means you're listening to Fault Lines with Franzak and Thomas. What's happening, Franzak? Oh, nothing. Just waiting for these files to convert. You have a good weekend? <laughs> I had a great weekend. Um, so did kind I. of unplugged a little bit. Yeah. What did, now, for you, what does that mean, unplug? I watch the news half the time. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> fair enough. Um, I had a really good weekend. I ended up, I realized I get withdrawals when I leave from work. Mm-hmm. It's like there's a lot of social interaction that takes place within the context of the team. And so it's like when you go in the weekend and you don't have the two dogs and the ex, it creates this kind of empty space. It's like, okay. And so I figured, get out, do something. I ended up going down this kind of market, getting all of these pictures and everything else. So my studio is now set up. I have I all saw, of these Star Trek yeah. pictures on the wall. And I saw you were playing chess. Yes. People had asked for it. I used to do it beforehand um, on the... Very cool. I used to do it. And the people used to come on and be like, oh, dude, play chess, play chess. We haven't seen you play chess. So when they saw me restart my channel, you had a lot of people asking, um, is it? Where's the chess board? Yeah, where's the chess board? It's dramatic. It's intense. It explains why it should be a sport. All of that stuff. It's it's high drama. High drama. High drama. Never thought I would hear high drama coming out of chess. <laughs> but let me tell you something. We do have some high drama coming out of Germany, folks. And let me tell you, when I opened up our headlines, I almost spat out my water because in your COVID headlines, a German man received 90 COVID-19 shots Yes, you heard that right. Over the course of several months until he was finally caught by German authorities (laughs) Sunday. According to an AP report, the man received the 90 shots in order to sell the COVID-19 vaccination cards to prospective customers. Here's the funniest crap of all of it. I would would love to know if this guy ever got COVID. If he ever got it. That's interesting. I would love to know if you ever, I mean, 90 times. He has to have like an immunity, like nobody's business. Unless it gets to the point where it's no longer an immunity and it just kind of eats him alive because it turns into COVID. So, I mean, and when you think about amazing. it too, I mean, this guy must have had to go around like dozens of places because it's like, wait a minute, I've seen this guy before. You would think they would have some kind of system where they can keep track of the people who are basically getting the shot. Or I guess maybe you're trying to get it up. Also, Think of the number of people who needed a shot and weren't able to get the shot because this guy is just going around and getting and collecting shots. That's astonishing. You hamburglar. I don't know what I would call him. A German, a German swear. I don't know what it would be. Wow. Oh, boy. Well, meanwhile, in the UK, the island nation hit a record high, uh, record high 5 million COVID-19 infections with this latest surge of infections coming from the widespread Omicron variant. The UK is witnessing a steep rise in COVID-19 cases as these latest figures come on the same day the government ended their free rapid COVID-19 testing for most people in England. In your national news, a mass shooting took place in the California capital early Sunday, resulting in the death of six people and the hospitalization of 12 others. Sacramento Police Chief Kathy Lester said the shootings occurred after a large brawl broke out in downtown Sacramento. Lester reported that there were 
There was more than one shooter at the scene of the crime. An investigation is currently ongoing. Former President Donald Trump made headlines this past weekend when he endorsed former Alaskan Governor Sarah Palin for U.S. Congress. He said, quote, Wonderful patriot Sarah Palin of Alaska just announced she is running for Congress. And that means there will be a true America first fighter on the ballot to replace the late and legendary Congressman Don Young. Sarah shocked many when she endorsed me early 2016 and we won bigly. (laughs) Now it's my turn. Sarah has been a champion for Alaska values Alaska energy, Alaska jobs, and the great people of Alaska. I would love Donald Trump to tell me one fact about Alaska, by the way. (laughs) Sir, point to it on a map. (laughs) Well, if you were planning to fly domestically this past weekend... You might have faced some unexpected delays as a powerful thunderstorm combined with technological issues at a union strike from pilots working for several airlines, including Delta and Alaskan Air, caused several flight delays. On Saturday and Sunday alone, more than 3,200 flights were canceled and 7,000 flights were delayed, according to the flight tracking site FlightAware. In your international news, the Kremlin's defense ministry rejected accusations that Russian forces carried out mass executions in the Ukrainian city of Bukha before the before withdrawing it from that area. The defense ministry called the images from Bukha another provocation. The defense ministry asserted that during the Russian military's control of Bukha, not a single local resident was hurt. They would go on to accuse the Ukrainian government of staging this event. The defense ministry stressed that Russian troops abandoned the city on March 30th and pointed out that the city's mayor, Antoly Fedoruk confirmed this fact the next day. Lastly, they added that the mayor never mentioned in his March 31st speech that any civilians had been shot in the street with their hands tied, as claimed by Kiev. More than 36.3% of votes counted. Viktor Orban, Hungary's sitting prime minister, has declared an early victory in the country's general election. Orban's projected victory comes alongside polls showing that the ruling conservative government and its junior party will likely retain the parliamentary supermajority that has allowed the country to become an illiberal democracy during the prime minister's 12-year reign. Orban, a close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, has been outspoken about Hungary maintaining its relationship with Russia despite pressure from the EU and NATO member states. Incumbent Serbian President Aleksandr Vucic announced his victory in the first round of the presidential elections. Vucic uh, pointed out that he received around 60% of the total vote, about the same number of votes that were previously predicted by political experts in these elections. In his victory speech, the president also stressed that Serbia will continue to maintain a friendly partnership and relations with Russia. In your tech news, Twitter founder and former CEO Jack Dorsey posted Sunday that he regrets his role in centralizing the internet. Dorsey lamented the early years of the internet when developers were finding ways to streamline new technology Well, the Twitter founder highlighted the need to make investors money as one of the main catalysts that allowed advertising to dominate the internet and eventually led to its centralization. In your business news, the price of an oil barrel is back down to 100 bucks after a turbulent month that saw its price skyrocket due to several factors, including the war in Ukraine. 
According to Bloomberg, West Texas Intermediate is trading up 0.1%, while the world's biggest independent oil trader, Vitol Group, said that next weekend's oil prices could be higher given the risk of a supply disruption from Russia. And the United States will give an additional 50 million in assistance money to in assistance money to Moldova, adding to an already 20 million promise to help the Eastern European nation deal with the influx of Ukrainian refugees. The announcement was made by the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who was participating in a joint press conference with Moldovan Prime Minister Natalia Gavrilita. Your holidays today, Bonza Bottler Day, Hug a News Person Day, because we all could kind of use one, International Carrot Day, your Jeep 4x4 Day, It is also the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King. And finally, National Cordon Blue Day. Those are your headlines for Monday, April 4th, 2022. I can get behind that. The Hug a News Person Day? Well, that too. Oh. The Cordon Blue Day. Oh, Cordon Blue? I actually like those. Yeah, there was that. And then um, you used to get, I remember my mom as a kid, there's these, and she still does it sometimes, there are these frozen chicken things. And they have chicken Kiev and then chicken cordon bleu. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I was like, Mom, are they going to rename your famous chicken Kiev? <laughs> or, or actually, no, they wouldn't rename it. They would actually probably keep it and like yeah, they would keep boost it. it up on steroids. Yeah. yeah, they would keep it. They would keep it. They're Puerto Vaca, but they would keep that. Uh-huh. Um, there's been several stories over the weekend that bugged me so much this morning. And I'm not going to go overly into them because, you know, the whole um, monologue thing. But like it was, we were talking outside, this notion... They are now saying that war crimes have been committed in, what I think it's called Bucha, one of the places in Ukraine. And this is apparently after the Russians have left. And of course, every incentive in the world exists for them to basically do this because the United States is trying to get Europe to punch itself in the genitals that much harder. Um, they're basically trying to use it <laughs> as an excuse to say, let's go forward. Now, here's the thing. If that is true, that would be utterly and entirely horrendous, regardless of which side has done it. By the same token, you cannot use the same people who are perfectly willing to basically provoke and to fake a chemical weapon strike and use the OPCW to be the arm of doing so. Um, and I'm talking about the U.S. in this, and it's basically European vassal states. And so, yeah, there's been no independent cooperation that this is basically taking place. You have Russia, what is her name, Maria Zerkalva, basically saying they want a U.N. security conference um, Right here. Russia to demand convening a U.N. security conference session over Bucha provocation again. Bog of war. Bog of war. Um, we're looking for Brian Williams, right? The, what do you, I am guided by the beauty of our missiles. I'm guided by the beauty of our missiles. Psychopath. <laughs> um, if you don't remember, Brian Williams, Trump gets in office. There's a chemical weapon strike, apparently, that we are being told has taken place. Not cooperated. Nobody has confirmed it. You have people who are basically the enemies of Assad coming out and saying it, just like you have the enemies of, of Putin, basically, the Ukrainian opposition coming out and doing and saying this. And Trump fires missiles immediately. Brian Williams comes out and is like, this is the moment that Trump seemed presidential. That was the stuff that people were saying. This is when Trump looks like a president as he's killing Syrians for a crime that they couldn't identify, prove that took place and ultimately didn't take place at all. Astonishing, right? And Brian Williams is there. I am guided by the light of our missiles as these missiles just fly off into the black night. 
Mm-hmm. Astonishing. Astonishing. Who knew that missiles could be beautiful? Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? As they flying through the air looking for but a target you, to basically when, blow up. When you don't say that missiles are beautiful, you now um, are a Putin puppet. You're that. That too. That yeah. too. Because of, you know, it, it's just, look, man, this stuff gets dark and it feels like we have been stuck in this. And I, I keep, there's a certain level of indignation with me because I keep asking myself, why are we here? Why are we here? Like, you have, oh, and Wall Street Journal comes out this, uh, yesterday, basically says Zelensky was presented with a plan from Olaf Scholz and from Macron to basically say out loud what everybody had been saying behind the scenes. How long ago was this? Uh, uh, let's see. Oh, you put me on the spot. I need to pull up the article. I was going by off of my head information when you basically expose the fact that I didn't have the article up looking well, directly but, but at But here's it. one thing, though. As you're looking for that, though, yes. like um, producer Eddie says, that they should have known better given the propaganda war in Syria. Burden of proof going forward is on Russians. This is not a court of law. This is one of the biggest media campaigns in history. Yes. You know, and then that we'll be asking Sloboda about why Russians are so um, archaic in this information warfare. You know, if if remember... You always heard that the Russians hacked the election. The Russians were, you know, behind all of the social media propaganda and Super what have you. Propaganda. If they were so up on up on the up and up of, of all of this technology and all of this information war, then why are they losing it drastically now? Right. Good question. And it's and it's and it's not like trying to defend Russia. It's just a question of if they could do it six years ago, and then do it again in 2020. Why not now? Why not two years later? And did it, they it, just, it, did the computer crash? One of the most important events that is taking place in, look, whether you realize this or not, your world is being partitioned going forward into something different. This is going, it's going to be different. All of these countries are disambiguating themselves. I mean, the fact that Russia is realizing that Europe is not going to be a good partner from the standpoint of gas. Europe realizes that because they want to screw with Russia, they are not going to be a good standard. Meaning all of these countries are basically breaking away from this kind of typical global standard that has gone for the last, what, 20, 30, 40 years. It's going to be something different on the other end of that. I don't know what that is, but it's not going to be to our betterment as a world community. I'll put it that way. Well, it was, it was really interesting. Last night I was talking to a very good friend of mine, um, Tara Reed. Her and I, like, we talk weekly just about, like, what's going on with life and all that. And, you know, we were saying, like, you know, because... You know, RT, you know, as you know, RT America closed and, um, you know, she was asking, you know, hey, like what, what's like the next steps with RT America? And I was like, honestly, I have no idea. And I was like, but they they did approach us and they said, hey, we're, we're opening up in Africa. They're opening up in Nairobi. They're yeah. opening up in um, Nairobi is a beautiful country. Yeah. Shanghai. They're opening up in Singapore. And many of us were offered to move and, and go work there. Now, my thing is, is I would love to. If I didn't have family here, you know, my parents are getting older and stuff. And and she was like, you know, maybe you could go for a couple of years or whatever. But she was like, basically, the conversation morphed into everything now is going to be moving to the east. Yes. You know, and every the east is going to be the new dominant of I mean, and the one thing that she told me, she's like, yeah, did you know that Singapore is a smart city? Yes. And I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> the wire, the way it's wired. Yeah, yeah, the way that it's wired. And I was like, yeah, um. We don't even have one here in the no. United States. No, we don't. You know, and that's the thing is, is when you look at at what's being done over there and what's and how we're almost like this dinosaur still, um, it's it's very scary. But at the same time, instead of rejecting it, you know, it's like if you can't beat them, join them. And there's nothing wrong, I think, with, you know, 
going and having these conversations with China and, and, you know, India and all these other countries and being like, hey, like, how can we get ourselves ahead? But for some reason, I don't know why it's just this, this, just this crazy threat 24 seven. But again, she was so right. She was just like, everything is moving to the East and that is going to be where the future is. We look at the world in zero sum terms. And so instead of, hey, let's learn from that. We don't need to learn from that. We're indispensable. It's that. It's this kind of weird cultural shift. At the, I don't know where it necessarily took place. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It doesn't necessarily have to be this kind of vulture world where one country is trying to put a knife in the other country in order to gain it. That's a choice. That's a cultural choice on some level. It could be win-win. It doesn't necessarily have to be this way. And yet, here we are. You have all of these resources on the planet, and we can't come to some kind of agreement on how those resources are basically partitioned where we won't necessarily try to go each other's throats. Um, February uh, 19th breaking, was uh, the sorry, date. Sorry, quick breaking news. Uh, Putin just congratulated both Viktor Orban and Vyshik on their election victories in Hungary and Serbia. So Interesting. You can imagine that there's a lot of people in Europe shaking their fists at both of those. Um, Zelensky, they did this on February 19th. Again. If he would have accepted what he is trying to accept now, this doesn't take place. That's, God, it is hard to like, you, you, in behind the scenes, they're telling him, you're not going to be part of NATO. Behind the scenes, they're trying to get him to say what they've been telling him behind the scenes. You're not going to be part of NATO. We need you to say it. Zelensky turned him down. I suspect the United States was telling him, don't, don't, don't take it, don't take it, whatever. Um, this was going to be signed by Putin and Biden. So I guess I'm, for me, I'm indignant by that, right? How many people have basically died as a result of this war? How many people have been in this kind of conflict? And then well, I think the other question too, Jamarl, is why all of a sudden did they have to go tell him in the middle of February, hey, you're never going to be part of NATO? And why doesn't Schultz come out? Is it because of the truth of the troop buildups? Is it because, you know, why all of a sudden randomly, yeah. all of a sudden 2022 starts and hey, we got to make sure that we tell Ukraine now they're not part of NATO. Yeah. Why? Maybe that's another question for Sabloda. And behind Sabloda. the scenes, by the way. Meaning, why don't the Schultz and Macron come out and basically say, you are not going to be part of NATO. We tried to have this deal. He didn't necessarily want to do it. And yes, of course, that has a certain consequence associated with it or ramifications. But one of the ramifications that I would argue that is more important, you don't have a war. Or at the very least, you at the very least put pressure on trying to avoid an utter and entire disaster. And it's not even just disaster from the standpoint of Ukraine. You're talking about ramifications that are expanding beyond that to the world economy and even to this kind of, let's say, security apparatus of Europe and the United States and, like you said, the East. Look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Radio Sputnik. You're listening to Fault Lines. I'm Farron Franzek, joined with my co-host here, Jamarl Thomas. And while he did have a great weekend, Jamarl, you kind of got a big <laughs> fault this morning. And whatever could that be? What are we guided by to this morning, Jamarl, of the missiles of your beauty? Why are we here? That's why we're guided. That's why I am. Why are we here? Rational man, indignant, rational man. And I try to, you know, it's like I, tr I try to communicate this to random people and you can see their eyes roll over. And if they can quite get it at the level to which I try to um, get it to them, 
they would basically crush under the strain of what they are being told. Why on earth are we here? And what I mean by that is in this kind of weird geopolitical situation where the world teeters on the brink, you have one actor that's in this that has been going around the world shopping, shopping for people to sign this petition for the Third World War. And of course, this is great man, Zelensky. And I'm saying that sarcastically because I don't believe he's a great man at all. I believe he started and dragged his country into a war. We're finding out from the Wall Street Journal that behind the scenes, I just read it. Mr. Schultz, we're talking about German Chancellor um, Schultz, made one last push for a settlement between Moscow and Kiev. He told Zelensky in Munich in February 19th that Ukraine should renounce its NATO aspirations and declare neutrality as part of a wider European security deal between the West and Russia. Understand the gravity and geopolitical significance of what we're talking about. We're talking about a new security architecture in Europe. No more, no less. That's what they're basically trying to create. Hey, Russia has security concerns. They have some real security issues. We pretend as if that is not true. If the same situation happened to the United States, we would not tolerate it. If a hostile nation knocked over Mexico or, for that matter, took over certain regions of Canada and maybe even was friends with Alaska and started putting weapons, munitions, started organizing them within into this kind of defensive architecture that is on the border of the United States. I'm sorry, we wouldn't tolerate it. Be honest about that fact. And I say be honest about that because when the same thing happens to Russia, we pretend as if it is not true. I don't care what propaganda you put out there. You cannot deny that a country, sovereign nation, has security concerns, especially when you have 13 other nations that have basically joined NATO, and those things have basically surrounded or at the very least trying to surround the country. And then you find out that, hey, Zelensky turned down what he is basically now accepting. How many people have lost their lives for this disaster, this horrific, horrific outcome, something that did not need to take place? And more importantly, what are you willing to pay for Ukraine? Meaning, how much is Europe? How much is the African-American? How much are you willing to pay for having Ukraine in the U.S. orbit? Fine. You knocked over a government. That government just so happens to be on the border of Russia. You use neo-Nazis as basically a knife or, let's say, a battering ram to affect your agenda. Okay, fair enough. You got Ukraine. You got a puppet in that country. And in the context of getting that puppet in the country, like Jin Saki said, we got to pay for our values, right? All right, we're paying for our values. How much is it going to cost and how much are you willing to pay? I am not asking the Sakis of the world. I am not asking the wealth of the various countries, not even the political leaders. I'm talking about the average American, the average European, the average Brit that go home, that do their jobs, that basically, you know, play their Xbox, have sex with some random woman here or there. Basically. People who are living their lives, and that's all they want to do, just live their life. They want to support the family, etc. All things being equal, that is perfectly fine, but instead, you get people who don't just want to live their life, who actually have grandiose ideas about how they want to manipulate items around the world. And in doing so, especially from a pinnacle of power, NATO being a projection, power projection device in Europe led by the United States, or for that matter, just even U.S. policy in general, using the dollar or using whatever tools at its disposal to basically go after opponents. And they try to take actions in various countries in order to affect a geopolitical agenda. The world is a grand chessboard. Under normal circumstances, at the very least, at the fall of the Soviet Union, 
We won. We could do that without too many tremendous consequences. Yes, the consequences were monstrous for the other countries we were doing it in. Iraq, Libya, Syria, etc. Hundreds of thousands of people losing their lives, but the consequences here weren't that significant. What about now? What about now? It's one thing, a rational average man who's living his life to not entirely pay attention to the events that are going on outside their world when it doesn't affect him, but what happens when it does? And that's what I'm asking you. In order to keep Ukraine in the U.S. orbit, a country that is on the other side of the globe that most of you didn't even know where it was, in order to keep it inside a U.S. orbit, how much are you willing to pay for it? And what we're paying for it is in our wallets. It's in the amount of food that is going to cost a different value. It's in the famine that is going to be created in various parts of the globe as a result of the wheat production or the gas production or, for that matter, um, other items that are going to be sanctioned that are coming out. Germany, another article that came out, which also inspires this, without Russian gas, there will come a virtual failure of our industrial networks head of the BDI forecasting, he added that it was currently impossible to put a price on the potential losses and even give a ballpark figure about how much it would cost the average German. Quote, we are talking about a whole different kind of collapse of our industry, unquote, Russworm argued, adding that Germany could see the disintegration of the very industry it was so proud to have seen us through the pandemic. That's astonishing. That's astonishing. The reason he's saying that is because there's other people on the stage that are like, cut off the pipes. Cut off the pipes. Screw it. Cut off the pipes. I have our ideology. We can sit here in the cold. I don't care. And his point to them is you are going to destroy the German industry. Don't just take his word for it. New York Times right here. The war has prompted democracies to move away from relying on Russian exports. They propose cutting natural gas deliveries by two-thirds next winter and to end them altogether by 2027. The goal may be overly ambitious, experts say. No, duh. No, duh. Of course it's overly ambitious. In any case, the transition to other suppliers and eventually to more renewable energy resources will be expensive and painful. On the whole, Europeans may be poorer and colder for at least a few years because of spiraling prices and dampening economic activity caused by the energy shortages. How much is it worth? How much is it worth? You knocked over government. Now you're paying for it. How much is it worth? My point is, it didn't have to happen. You could have fulfilled the Minsk agreements. You could have dissolved NATO at the point where NATO, where the Soviet Union fell. You didn't have to expand it to the border of Russia. For that matter, you could have accepted the very basic tenet of Ukraine would not be a part of NATO. At each step along the way, there was no willingness to compromise from the standpoint of the West. And here we are. And now they're willing to accept what was given in the beginning. Spain, 10% inflation. The UK, more strikes than under normal circumstances in the last several years. Even UK inflation has basically spiked. And of course, Germany, on note of the sanctions alone, 10% inflation. This is not going according to plan. And the people who are basically paying in order to keep Ukraine in the US orbit are the wealth of the nations. I mean, I'm sorry, are us. It's us. It's my mom, your mom, um, your dad, your family, your friend, your uncle. And all of these people are basically paying a tax for the geopolitical wants of a few craven personalities in the United States and in Europe. Baron, average person should be apoplectic over this 
because they're going to be paying more for food or for gas. They're going to be paying more. And just think, anytime you deal with gas, you're talking about all of these other aspects of the economy that are hit by it because all of those aspects need energy in order to operate. And they didn't have to do any of this. And yet here we are. It's aggravating. Like when people realize, like, why do you need Ukraine in your orbit? Why do you have a right to knock over a government in such a way? And they're doing this and we're getting blowback from it. I guess that's my feeling from it. It's I like mean, you it can ask the happen. same thing, though, about, for example, Pakistan that just happened. It was in a, a, a coup where they tried to take out uh, uh, Prime Minister Imran Khan. Or excuse me, President Imran Khan. Maybe. And, you know, there's there's allegations that it definitely was yes, U.S. backed. there's allegations, right. And um, it failed miserably. And you have it where, you know, why is it that all of these countries all of a sudden have this this orbit that we have to care about? And again, we're sending $20 million this morning to Moldova. Okay, that country, seriously, folks, point to it on a map for me. The only reason I knew of Moldova before all of this went down was because if you watch 90 Day Fiance, Libby and Andre, or Andre, Andre is from Moldova, okay? That is the only reason that I knew of Moldova before. And I was like, oh, wow, it is an Eastern European country, you know? So it's like, but most most Americans are not going to know where Moldova is right. or what the relationship is with Russia or what have you. Um, and how much are we sending them? $20 million. $20 million. $20 million could probably get rid of half of the college debt that kids are having to deal with. I was watching this really great documentary over the weekend on Amazon Prime, for those that are interested, called How Did China Get Rich? Do you know one of the first things that they did when, when after it was, it was the 1949 revolution and then they, the, the new, again, it was Mao Zedong, I think, came in. Like I said, don't quote me on these names because I was trying to just look at like what they did, not yeah. paying attention really to the people. But um, one of the first things they did is they had everybody take a test as to where they were going, how, like what level they were going to start in school. Oh, I see. Right. Everybody started going to school. And it was the first thing that was done, which is then like why then they started. And then I think it was uh, Dong. Yeah, I think it was Mao Zedong. He went over to Singapore and looked at what they were doing. He looked over at Hong Kong because they, they were seeing how everyone was trying to escape over to Hong Kong to go work there. People were actually crossing the river and dying. There was even like this whole like they used to call it the corpse the Corpse um, Lagoon, or it was something where all these people were dying trying to just swim across, which reminded me very much of like when I lived in El Paso with people trying to cross the river to get into from Juarez to the United States or even just from other countries coming up through the southern border. But again, the, the first thing they did is they took all of these farmers and people that were living out in the sticks and just, you know, having this life of poverty over and over and over. And it was this generational poverty and they got them into school. And people were like, wow. Like, I mean, when you, because they, they interviewed a number of people where this happened. And when you, they talk about getting an education. I mean, it was like kids on Christmas. And you're just like, as Americans, we take such advantage of that. But at the same time, granted. we take it for granted. But at the same time, this country does nothing to help fix our education systems. And if we had a smart country where we could start building our own stuff and we didn't have to go to China and we could work in partnership or what have you, I mean, it's one thing when Ted Cruz is always complaining about, you know, they're taking our intellectual property and goddamn them and oh my God. And it's like, well, hey, 
I don't see Americans doing a lot of this stuff. I don't see them trying to make it here. They're, they're taking the intellectual property because they're going back to China because they know that they're making it there. You know, so it's just it was just very interesting, though, in just just the plain brass bones of or the, sorry, the bare bones of just getting an education. And when you see our country, how, you know, when I was in journalism school, folks, they told us to write to an eighth grade reading level. So, like, that's why I speak simply and Jamarl speaks so eloquently. Um, maybe it's because you I didn't, didn't go, go to journalism, journalism school. school. <laughs> <laughs> but again, they told us the average, the average level of reading across the board is an eighth grade reading level. Well, folks, it's dropped down to sixth grade. So we're not going up. We're going down. China, it's like these kids are growing up. They're speaking three different languages between either Chinese. English is the number one language that they learn. Yeah. Um, and it's just, it's very puzzling as to why all of a sudden we're going to throw all this money into all these countries that Americans are, aren't going to be able to locate on a map um, because God forbid history teaches us that history class teaches anything anymore. And it's just very sad. It's very sad. Agreed. The money should be invested here before anywhere else. Um, let's, let's do this. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Bronzak, Mark Sloboda is going to be back. We're going to let him give his two cents to the Kansas City article. In addition to everything else that's okay. going on, I don't think we got his take on that yet. Uh, but you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas Franzak, back in a moment. Fault Lines. Fault Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Frank Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C., if you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging with Farron and I are putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps makes this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. I'm just going to bring our guests in. Mark Sloboda, you guys know who he is. He's the international relations and security expert and U.S. Navy veteran. He is also our voice of truth, regardless of what Kansas City has to say about him. We love him. Mark, welcome to the show, my man. How are you doing this morning? King. <laughs> Jamal, Miss Pierogi, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the Pierogi Show. Absolutely, my man. It's always an honor and a pleasure to have you. Um, let's start with that, with that first. I definitely want to get into what seems to be a repositioning and a redeployment of forces for a battle that is apparently going to take place over the Donbass. And again, this was Russia's main key objective in the first place. So that's something to watch. But I want to just get a quick take from you on the Kansas City thing. I, like I said, I was somewhat amused by the whole thing. And they didn't like you very much at all. Um, any response? And again, this is not forcing you to have a response. Just putting it out there, giving you the opportunity. Oh, uh, no, I, I, I don't mind. I mean, it's, it's not my first rodeo on this one. Mark Sloboda. Uh, so if you were reading that, you might think there had been a billion Russian troops killed and Ukrainian freedom fighters are storming Moscow said Mark Sloboda, Putin's Moscow-based mouthpiece <laughs> and frequent contributor to pro-Russian media companies. Well, I, I am a frequent contributor to pro-Russian media companies. I'm also a frequent contributor to pro-Indian media companies and pro-Chinese media companies and 
pro-Brazilian in the, I mean, media all over the world. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, take that for what it's worth. But let's be honest, the reason why you're a contributor to them is because you're not getting calls from Western media. No, I'm, I, well, actually, I That's mean, I've France done my round, I've done my round of France 24, BBC. I actually declined to go on BBC anymore, uh, despite repeated attempts to get me back on after they asked me uh, if I was a mouthpiece for, um, uh, using the same words exactly as the Kansas City mouthpiece uh, for the Kremlin, at which I replied, well, at least I'm not a mouthpiece for Downing Street, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, uh, you know, that that's sort of back and forth. And any case, uh, you know, as is usual in this type of, of, of hit piece, you know, they they throw up a couple, uh, you know, things that have been said by me and others uh, on Sputnik, uh, particularly about the conflict in Ukraine, without refuting any of them, without presenting any counter evidence, and then just accuse me of being Putin's Moscow-based mouthpiece. Wow. All right. I mean, it would really be nice to get a, a paycheck, and I, I sincerely hope uh, that the Kansas uh, City editorial board uh, for, what is this rag? Kansas City <laughs> something, Kansas City Star, the Kansas City Star. I sincerely hope that the editorial board of the Kansas City Star, which felt this was important enough, uh, will s send a letter of recommendation uh, for me to the Kremlin uh, saying that I'm willing <laughs> to be their mouthpiece because I am sure that, you know, their uh, propping of me in, in that way Will, will help the Kremlin realize that I am indeed their mouthpiece and that I should be paid for such. But unfortunately enough, I, I am not, and I'm not employed by Russian media in any way, and uh, I have never been an employee of Russian media. Uh, but, you know, hey, Putin, if you're listening, the Kansas City Star thinks I'm your mouthpiece. So uh, where's, where's the rubles? Where's the, especially I was going to say, did you strong. get your Putin cell phone yet? The hotline straight to Putin? We're still waiting on ours. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have actually, uh, I have briefings uh, once a week uh, uh, over polonium tea, and and usually it's the KGB that gives me my briefings with my brilliant analysis. Uh, but every once in a while, Putin does it himself. So yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Um, so let's get into That's press. satire, by the way, folks. Yeah, he's not being Politico serious. Or he's not being serious. Else, don't because political will write that as he does. <laughs> As a flat fact, so hey, you said this. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like Simone said the quiet part out loud. Um, yeah, I guess I guess that needs to be said. Yeah, right. has, seriously, gotta say it. Gotta say it. Satire, um, crackpot journalist. Um, so yeah, what is taking place? I guess they're. I guess the main story, you know, before we even get into the Donbass stuff, has to do with what they're calling to be war crimes. Now, Russia at this point um, is calling for a Security Council meeting. In order to discuss Ukrainian military's provocation in Bucha. That's already been denied. The United Kingdom, which holds the uh, sitting presidency of the Security Council, has denied that meeting. It will not happen. So explain what they're accusing Russia of and explain what Russia's position is on it, just so the public can understand what's going on. OK, so uh, Bucha is one of the suburb towns outside of uh, to the to the north of Kiev, uh, north. Uh, west of Kiev, where um, their um, Russian forces uh, withdrew from uh, the area as as part of their strategic re reorientation to the east. And th depending on how you you say, uh, turn that, um, you know, uh, Russia's from the very beginning, they stated that the, the primary focus of their military 
operation in the beginning was was going to be Donbass, uh, but you know th- that required a, a whole scale degeneration of the Ukrainian military around the country first. Um, uh, and uh, you know, Western media decried that. Oh, that's not really what they want. Um, and uh, then the story is that uh, Ukrainian resistance, uh, uh, you know, outside of Kiev and several other northern cities like Sumy and Kharkov, was so dogged uh, that uh, it prevented Russia from doing a full surrounding of these cities, which they never said that they necessarily wanted to do. Um, and that, um, the, the Russia has effectively been defeated, that they have chosen that that would be too costly and redirected their forces to the East where the majority of the Ukrainian regular army, uh, some 40 to 60,000 troops is in a rapidly closing, uh, cauldron up against Donbass. Uh, the Russian story, is, the Russian military says that the operations uh, are around um, Kiev and Sumy and Kharkov was there to pin down forces and prevent reinforcement of this large Ukrainian force uh, in Donbass. Uh, so if you want to call that a feint, if you want to call that a, uh, a pinning force, but the idea was to prevent uh, reinforcements uh, reaching this large military force. And now they're withdrawing in good order in order to be able to uh, contribute uh, to uh, the either you know, forced surrender or uh, neutralization of that large contingent of the Ukrainian regular army in East Ukraine, which would presumably lead on to another phase, which is not to say that Russia is permanently gone from those, those areas. But... Um, the Russian military forces withdrew on March 30th. Um, on March 31st, the mayor of Buka, who had actually been the mayor of the city the entire time, uh, the Russian military forces had not removed him. Um, he had, uh, to some extent, cooperated with them. Uh, however, um, grudgingly, uh, he was still in office. Um, and... Uh, He announced on the 31st of March that Buka was fully liberated um, and that um, there were, uh, you know, uh, the the Russian forces had completely withdrawn. And then we see reports from the Ukrainian police, uh, this up on their own website, where they uh, announced that, uh, you know, Russian forces were completely removed uh, from Buka. Um, and that they were conducting an operation to root out saboteurs and any collaborators, uh, people, uh, Ukrainians who had collaborated with the Russian military forces to eliminate them. Um, and this was all before, a couple of days before. We had seen video reports. We had reports from the mayor. We had reports from the police. What there weren't any reports about was of a massacre, that there were large numbers, uh, you know, uh, dozens, hundreds of uh, people uh, from Buka uh, laying out in the streets just in, by the road in front of their houses, presumably uh, the narrative now goes uh, that, uh, you know, Russia conducted a, a massacre of civilians um, as they were pulling out. Um, and there is a uh, on April uh, just 
uh, on uh, well, it would be in the early hours of yesterday, but in the last 48 hours, um, uh, Associated uh, uh, Press or uh, AFP, actually, I believe, was brought through uh, and uh, they were allowed to film a video by Ukrainian military forces driving down one street in which there were obviously what appears to be a number of bodies uh, outside of some houses on both sides of a road. Now, I have, there are a lot of questions why the mayor of Bucha, you know, when he announced the liberation of the, of the town several days before, made no mention of any type of massacre or atrocities, uh, why the Ukrainian police uh, releasing video and uh, print reports uh, about, uh, you know, them now operating in the city again, uh, made no mention of that while they were mentioning an operation to eliminate uh, collaborators uh, within the city. Um, and I would say from what it appears and what we know, even from U.S. top military experts on Russia, it flies in the face uh, of the way Russia has conducted their military campaign in the country thus far, that they would just start shooting every civilian they see when they leave. Uh, and um, it, however, does not fly in the face of reports from the Ukrainian media that we have gotten of the way that the regime in Kiev has conducted this campaign, where they're shooting their own officials in the street for being traitors and collaborators and so forth. But so here's the question that I have, Mark, is that with all of this going on, I mean, how, I mean, did they not learn from the Syrian conflict and all of this? I mean, why aren't Russians providing any proof? How can you withdraw a large force and not have any footage to refute these claims from the Ukrainian side? You know what I mean? Like, if, if they're saying that, that the Russians did this, I would think that they would try to prove as much as they possibly can that they didn't do it. And then, which leads to my next question, you know, Time and time again, we heard that Russia was behind the 2016 um, election, um, you know, um, the election conflict and that, you know, they were a part of it and they had all these high tech hackers and what have you. Why is it that they're losing the information war then? If they were able to win the Facebook war, why can't they win the war war, the information war war? You know what I mean? OK, well, first of all, obviously, Russia was never winning the information war in 2016 or any other time, that was actually the information war was that Russia was winning the information war. And Russia is actually very bad at information war. They're, 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 they're terribly bad at, at dominating the information space, be that in English or even in Russian. They're not, they're not fully competent at that. And why is it? Is, is it because of, you know, the old guard and the Russian military or why is that? Yeah, I mean, well, the Russian military is not the ones uh, conducting it. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think that they fully understand the way that, say, social media platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, uh, work, uh, and and the type of presentation that is necessary to sway hearts and minds on these platforms. I, I, I don't think they. I really wish we could get, get that in a recording to just on repeat for every election. They don't really get it, guys. <laughs> but keep going. I mean. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the whole Russiagate thing was, of course, you know, uh, fake and, and blown out of all out of all proportions for, yeah, unprovable in court and, and blown out of all proportions for domestic political purposes. Uh, but um, 
you know, the question why, you know, uh, you could say that if Russia pulled out of Buka and took videos of it, you know, the, uh, the, if they then came in and shot a bunch of people and laid them out in front of their houses to blame on Russia, they could simply say, well, the Russian video was filmed before they killed everyone. Right. I mean, yeah. you, you could always come up with an excuse like that, but yeah, Russia's not, not really good at this. And I, I think it takes a, a certain, uh, dare we say evil mind to, to conceive of, of these things. I, I think, you know, if you're shooting, okay, the, the premise is that, uh, you know, the, uh, Ukrainian forces, um, and we do have a video that was posted by Azov themselves, uh, on, on social media, uh, that shows a clip, uh, uh, part of a longer clip where, uh, one, uh, uh, there's a, a few, uh, I presume they are Azov members, their shoulder patches weren't visible, um, were walking through Buka and one of them says to the other, hey, there's some guys without blue armbands, uh, which are used, blue armbands are used to represent uh, Ukrainian forces, uh, Kiev regime forces and their supporters, while white armbands in this area are, uh, are used to represent um, uh, Russian forces and their supporters. It's an easy way to make sure you're not, uh, relatively easy way, not foolproof, to make sure you're not... Uh, you know, shooting your own people. Uh, and he said, there's a few people without blue armbands. And the other, the one, uh, can we shoot them? And the other guy says, yeah, shoot them all. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that, that was posted by Azov themselves. So you, you can take that for what it's worth. But assuming that the uh, Kiev regime's forces, you know, whether it's regular military or they're more out of control, uh, neo-Nazi elements went through uh, and did this, uh, I think there, Russia is certainly responsible because the Russian military, if they were pulling out of this area, had a responsibility to evacuate anyone who had, quote unquote, collaborated with them in the area, because it should have been painfully evident that what would happen to them. Um, I mean, the Ukrainian press has been, it's not reported in the Western media, but the Ukrainian press and their own uh, parliament members, their own RADA members, have been talking about how Ukrainian officials, like one of their first peace negotiators and a former member, a former uh, deputy director of the Ukrainian intelligence service, the SBU, were just shot in the street in broad daylight, summarily executed by their own intelligence or and or far right forces. Um, and filmed uh, on one occasion uh, doing it on, on the other. And this has happened again and again and again. So the Russian military should have known what would happen to anyone who was in any way seen working with them, even possibly taking help, humanitarian aid that Russia had delivered to these areas. That that uh, could also put people at risk. Not to mention the shot soldiers. I mean, there's been videos of, unfortunately, I ran into um, one of the, pages called war crimes on twitter and sat here and watch um yeah it is grisly i mean where these guys are basically shooting russian soldiers and let's be real for a moment i mean it's a situation where the country has been invaded you have these guys who are already rabid and radicalized in many respects on some level it's understood and either way whatever the truth is um on the ground basically this is going to be used to try to ramp up more um let's say sanctions it's going to be used by Zelensky to try to kickstart the Third World War that he's been basically trying to um, ensnare various countries into. Um, from, and I guess at least the two questions. 
One, the main battle that apparently is taking place over the Donbass region, which is, again, the point Western media never listens or at the very least um, doesn't listen on purpose because, you know, listening um, to what Putin is saying in this case basically is telling you exactly what they're trying to accomplish. But it, the, that battle, there seems to be a mass repositioning of forces from the standpoint of Ukraine and from the standpoint of Russia. What is going on um, in that in that situation? Okay, so, I mean, the main battles uh, are definitely, the, the main Russian military breakout was in the south. Uh, that is where uh, Russia uh, forces rapidly, uh, uh, rapidly, I want to say rapidly from the Ukrainian, uh, the Kiev regime perspective, uh, that as well, um, uh, moved up out of Crimea and, and took over uh, Kherson, uh, which is the region directly above it, and then started moving on. Um, uh, also, uh, they met up with forces out of the east, and they're still mopping up uh, resistance in Mariupol, which was the national headquarters of the neo-Nazi uh, Azov Brigade. Uh, but that situation is, is, is basically under control. It's a, a rooting out uh, and mopping up operation in urban combat. That basically gives the way that, uh, you know, for a greater concentration of forces from this, uh, from the north that has been withdrawn out of the Kiev uh, Sumy and Kharkov regions, and now up from the south and from the east, where the forces of the Donbass republics are also moving forward towards a main grouping of uh, the uh, Kiev regime's regular military forces, some 40 to 60,000 strong, at least at the start of, of the conflict, that were dug in tight in fortifications uh, on the edge of Donbass. Um, where you know they were uh, put there not only for defense but for the possible launching of a military campaign to retake the Donbass by force, the way they had at least twice before and and failed to do so. Um, so now these forces are almost completely surrounded. Um, uh, evidently, the, the regime in Kiev has forbidden them from retreating, um, and uh, they are dug in, but they've got to be running low on ammunition, uh, fuel, uh, uh, food supplies, uh, and other things. Um, and uh, I think that the main intent of the Russian military here is that hopefully forcing the surrender of these forces or their elimination in a uh, cauldron fire uh, by superior firepower and, and being surrounded, you know, lacking mobility, um, will uh, give Russia increased, uh, you know, uh, or political leverage uh, to try to force the regime in Kiev to see some sense and agree to uh, Russia's demands for a ceasefire. So, what are you? What are your expectations um, going forward? For, oh, b before we go into anything else, Imran Khan. We have about three minutes left, and I definitely want to get into that. He's basically saying there's a soft coup that is basically taking place. There was a no confidence vote. Um, the parliamentarian threw out that particular vote. And apparently he asked the president and say, hey, is it in my interest, meaning Imran Khan, prime minister, that we need to basically have elections? The president agreed. And so there's all sorts of political turmoil and intrigue taking place in Pakistan right now. Is Imran Khan correct about this notion of a coup? What's more likely to be true in this situation? Well, I wouldn't I, to, to call it a, a coup. It's like a soft coup. Let's call it that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, there is definitely, I mean, uh, Imran Khan uh, is not out of the mainstream 
uh, Pakistani political uh, parties or the political institutions of power. So he has as political enemies both of, of the mainstream uh, Pakistani political parties that have gone back and forth in the country for you know decades, uh, but as well the powerful military the intelligence services and the, the lawyers guilds in Pakistan, which are all separate, powerful political institutions in their own right. Uh, so they were moving towards a no confidence vote to remove him uh, from power, which is actually the usual way that Pakistani uh, prime ministers are are removed uh, from office. Uh, that's that's actually what usually happens. Uh, but. Uh, there, there does seem to be some evidence that the U.S. was actively encouraging this because Imran Khan was no friend of the U.S. and he was bringing Pakistani closer to uh, Russia and, and China, which they've long had relations with. And he uh, is specifically mentioned the U.S. Secretary of State for South and Central Asian Affairs, Donald Liu, who repeatedly warned in a meeting with a number of Pakistani uh, political representatives that there would be consequences if Imran Khan survived the opposition's no confidence motion in the National Assembly. Uh, so um, Imran Khan decided to one up a no confidence vote and say, oh, yeah, you want to get rid of me? Well, I'll take it directly to the people. And he's dissolved uh, the, the Pakistani parliament um, and uh, removing himself as prime minister in the process, but forcing new elections, which he uh, hopes and, and perhaps expects to win again, providing himself with a new mandate. Very interesting. Mark, thank you, my man. I really appreciate this rundown of what's going on, especially with everything basically that's been coming out in U.S. media um, on the whole um, issue in Ukraine. The Voice, you guys were listening to us, Mark Sloboda. He's an international relations and security expert and a U.S. Navy veteran. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas, Ronzak. Back in a moment. Fault lines. Fault lines. Live from the divided states of America, precipitously perched at the edge of this resilient and exploited globe. Welcome to your context lens for the American perspective. In the left corner, I am your ever vigilant, your indefatigable political analyst, Jamal Thomas. And in the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your pierogi princess, your journalist extraordinaire, Farron Franzak. That would mean, more likely than not, that you are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. Oh, right. Good show. Dark. Great show. Dark. And which is why I am so excited because after headlines, I have a fun game we're going to play. I am looking forward to this. This should well, be good. We're going to play, folks. And it's going to be chat involved because we're going to, I'm going to call out the ones that say it correctly. I heard a quote over the weekend from President Joseph Biden, which really was like, wow, he's either dumb, stupid, old, or just. All, really all of those. busy up in that brain of his. All of those. And it got me thinking, what other stupid things have our president said in the past? <laughs> and so we're going to play who said the stupid quote. And you folks are going to love it because some of these I didn't even know. I've never even heard of. And then uh -huh. when I actually went back and looked it up, I was like, wow. <laughs> There is no hesitation. They said it. And many of them doubled down on these quotes as well, folks. So. This should be good. With that, take it away. This should be good. Let's get into some headlines. Water? Yes, please. Um, cold. 
Thank you. In the news, a German man received 90 COVID-19 shots. Yes, you heard that right. 90 COVID-19 shots over the course of several months until he was finally caught by the German authorities on Sunday. According to AP report, the man received 90 shots in order to sell the COVID-19 vaccination cards to prospective customers. Wow. Meanwhile, in the UK, the Allen Nation hit a record 5 million COVID-19 infections, with its largest surge of infections coming from the widespread Omicron variant. The UK is witnessing a steep rise in COVID-19 cases as these latest figures came on the same day that the government ended their free rapid COVID-19 testing for most people in England. In national news, a mass shooting took place in California, capital, early Sunday, resulting in the death of six people and hospitalization of 12 others. Sacramento Police Chief Kathy Lester said the shootings occurred after a large brawl broke out in downtown Sacramento. Lester reported that there were more than one shooter, or there was more than one shooter at the scene of the crime. An investigation is currently ongoing. Former President Donald Trump made headlines this week past weekend when he endorsed former Alaskan Governor Sarah Palin for U.S. Congress. Quote, wonderful patriot Sarah Palin of Alaska just announced that she's running for Congress, and that means that there will be a true American first fighter on the ballot to replace the late and legendary Congressman Don Young. Sarah shocked many when she endorsed me early in 2016, and we won bigly. We won bigly. Now it's my turn. Sarah has been a champion for Alaska values, Alaska energy, Alaska jobs, and the great people of Alaska, Trump said in statement. Great people of Alaska. Where is it on the map, Trump? Where is it on the map? If you are planning to fly domestically this past weekend, you may have faced some unexpected delays as a powerful thunderstorm combined with technological issues and a union strike from pilots working for several airlines, including Delta and Alaska Air, caused several flight delays. On Saturday and Sunday alone, more than 3,200 flights were canceled and 7,000 flights were delayed, according to flight tracking website FlightAware. In international news, uh, close the headline. In international news, domestic Kremlin Defense Ministry rejected accusations that Russian forces carried out mass executions in the Ukrainian city of Buka before withdrawing from the area. Defense Ministry called the images from Buka, quote, another provocation, unquote. The Defense Ministry asserted that during the Russian military control of Buka, quote, not a single local resident was hurt, unquote. They would go on to accuse the Ukrainian government of staging this event. The Defense Ministry stressed the Russian troops abandoned the city on March 30th and pointed out that the city's mayor, Antony Antony Fedruk, confirmed this fact the next day. Lastly, they adopted or they added that the mayor never mentioned this March 31st speech that any civilians have been shot in the street with their hands tied, as claimed by Kiev. Russia is basically trying to get the UN Security Council to meet on this. The UK has basically denied that meeting. Let's keep going. Mark Sloboda discussed it earlier. Again, fog of war. And is it amply possible um, that uh, fog of war? I'll put, I'll put it that way. And you can hear Mark's um, thing on it. And again, you heard the Russian position on it. You're not necessarily going to hear that position on U.S. media. With more than 36.3% of votes counted, Viktor Orban, Hungary's sitting prime minister, has declared an early victory in the country's general election. Orban projected victory comes alongside polls showing that the ruling conservative government and its junior party 
will likely retain the parliamentary supermajority that has allowed the country to become a quote-unquote illiberal democracy during the prime minister's 12-year reign. Orban, a close ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, has been outspoken about Hungary maintaining its relationship with Russia despite pressure from EU and NATO member states. Incumbent Serbian President Alexander Vukic announced his victory in the first round of the presidential elections. Vucic, I think that's the way it's pronounced, pointed out that he received around 60% of the total vote, about the same number of votes that were previously predicted by political experts in these elections. In his victory speech, the president also stressed that Serbia would continue to maintain friendly partnership and relations with Russia. In tech news, Twitter founder and CEO, or former CEO Jack Dorsey, posted Sunday that he regrets his role in centralizing the internet. Dorsey lamented that the early years of the internet when developers were finding ways to streamline new technology. The Twitter founder highlighted the need to make investors money as one of the main catalysts that allowed the advertising to dominate the internet and eventually led to its centralization. Kevin Padian, a paleontologist and professor of integrative biology at the University of California, Berkeley, has proposed a new hypothesis that might explain why the arms of dinosaurs, known as Tyrannosaurus rex, are so, are so short. In a paper published by the Acta Paleontologia Politonica, Acta Paleontologia Polonusia Journal, I went for it, Padian postulates that T-Rex arms decreased in length in order to prevent amputation, accidental or intentional, that might have otherwise occurred when a pack of these creatures set upon a carcass to feast. These guys with... They, okay, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to go into it. Let's just keep going. Um, in business news, the price of oil barrel is back down to $100 after a turbulent month that saw its price skyrocket due to several factors, including the war in Ukraine. According to Bloomberg, West Texas Immediate is trading up 0.1%, while the world's biggest independent oil trader, Victol Group, said that this week's oil price could be higher given the risks of supply disruption from Russia. The United States will give an additional $50 million in assistance money to Moldova, um, adding that the already $20 million promised to help the Eastern European nation deal with the influx of Ukrainian refugees. The announcement was made by the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas Greenfield, who was participating in a joint press conference with Moldovan Prime Minister Natalia Gabritalia. Holidays, 404 Day, not sure what that is, Bonanza Bottler Day, Hug a News Person Day, always available. We need a hug. Oh, we need a hug. International Carrot Day, which somehow undermines the whole news person day thing. I'm um, the International Day for Mine Awareness and Assistance in Mine Action. Okay. Jeep 4x4 Day, National Cordon Blue Day, and Sweet Potato Day. Interesting. Those are your headlines. You guys are listening to Fault Lines with Thomas and Franzak. And I close. Oh, no, I didn't close it. This came out over the weekend, and I love this one. Appearing on May Britt, Illiner's political talk show on Thursday, Siegfried Russworm, the chairman of the Federation of German Industries, clashed with other guests who were calling for an immediate halt to Russian gas. Russworm pointed out that such an embargo were introduced the implications would be immense, going well beyond a speed limit on highway and recession and employment or unemployment, as the host suggested. Without Russian gas, there would come a virtual failure of our industrial networks, 
the head of BDI Forecasting. He added that it was currently impossible to put a price on the potential losses and even give a ballpark figure or how much it would cost the average German. Quote, we are talking about a whole different kind of collapse of our industry, Westworm argued, adding that Germany could see a disintegration of the very industry it was so proud of to have seen us through the COVID pandemic. Yeah, there's that. There's that. How much is it worth? Your freedom. Freedom isn't free. <laughs> it's just shocking that these guys are willing to go through this. That's all. I mean, and it's not even them willing to go through it, right? They're insulated. They're, they have their wealth um, that insulates them. So this kind of inflation thing, yeah, it may eat into whatever they pay in and everything else. It's the average person. That's the issue, right? My mom, who goes to get gas and is like, all right, I guess I'll just get a half a tank. Why? Because they go screwing around in some other country creating this kind of geopolitical crisis where the world is now splitting apart. Yeah, it's aggravating. That's all. And Germans are going to take the hit for that. Germany is the beating heart of Europe. What is it going to mean when Germany gets into a recession? What does it mean? I don't know what it means, but we'll find out because, yeah, a lot of these people, man, just, <laughs> I, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm just prepping myself and by the way, for these quotes. Doubling down, doubling down. Like we were making a point earlier about right, right here. U.S. weighs tougher sanctions after evidence of Buka killings. No duh. No duh. When the OPCW stuff came out, what did they use that to justify? Strikes on the side. When the OPCW goes and all of a sudden you find out that they were being massaged, pushed, um, um, intimidated in order to create a report that just wasn't true. You even had the people who were on the ground who actually did the first investigation come out and said the, pre the new report that they put out wasn't true. I guess my point is, don't have a good history in coming up with what's reality on the ground, especially when the information is coming from Ukraine that is a member in the conflict they were talking about, and Russian sources are basically being ignored. What's true? All I'm saying is there's been nothing to identify any level of reality on this issue one way or the other. And by the Russian story of it all, their troops were out. That needs to be contradicted, but all things been equal. This is where we are. This is where we are. And where we're going, we're about to, be, we're about to play a little game. <laughs> Have you ever seen Saw? Yes. We want to play Love a little Saw. game. Oh, we're going to play a little game, all right. Let's start early. Coming back in two minutes, we're going to play which U.S. president said it. Rumble.com slash fault lines. Folks. You are about to have your minds blown. That's all I'm going to say. We're back in two minutes. This should be good. <laughs> Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C., if you guys just so happen to find yourself in the D.C. area, you can pick us, catch us on the phone, 105.5. You can catch us on air at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging with Farron and I or putting down whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join us, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1322. Zero, your engagement helps make this show makes this show what it is. So definitely don't be shy, Baron. What is your thought for today? Okay, so over the weekend, President Joe Biden was out giving an award on one of the submarines or 
naval aircraft. It doesn't even matter. And um, <laughs> literally does not even matter. And, yeah, he was doing something. And this is what he told a crowd of, of people that were there, voters, what have you. Take a listen. I'm deeply proud of the work she's doing as First Lady with Joining Forces Initiative. She started with Michelle Obama when she was vice president and now carries on. I don't know if you heard that, but he called Michelle Obama the vice president. So he called her the first lady. He called her first lady and then called her vice president. Because I didn't understand what was going on. Uh, can we play that clip one more time? I'm sorry. Let's, I, I let's need, re-rack. Yeah, it's a quick clip, but I'm, I'm like, wait, what's going on? <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to understand what's going on. I know. A, he's slurring his words. Mm-hmm. But let's play the clip. And I'm deeply proud of the work she's doing as first lady with Joining Forces Initiative. She started with Michelle Obama when she was vice president and now carries on. Is he hooking up with Kamala Harris? <laughs> Like, he just forgot that, you know, it's like in this sensual relationship between the two, he accidentally said the quiet part out loud that this is the other woman in some weird way. just wait. So here we go, folks. As I saw this, I was like, wow. Oh, As a journalist, I was like, this got me thinking. What other stupid things have our presidents in the past had said? So we're going to play a little game called Who Said It? And folks in the chat, you're able to guess. Don't Google this or anything. But as you heard from Joe Biden and what he confused Michelle Obama being vice president, the first lady, whatever the hell you have. Let's go ahead and roll our, 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 our music bed here. Who said it? I now have been in 57 states. I think one left to go. Biden. No, these are these are U.S. presidents. Trump. Nope. I don't know. That was U.S. President Barack Obama. Really? Yes. No way. (laughs) I would have never thought that. All All right, right. here's your next one. There's an old saying in Tennessee. I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on you. George Bush. Fool me, you can't get fooled again. George Bush. That was George W. Bush. Wait till I say the whole quote, please. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know. (laughs) All right, Chad, I don't see you. Uh, Let's see. Let's see you, folks. Chad, get in on this. All right. The next one, and these are presidents and vice presidents, folks, okay? During my service in the United States Congress, I took the initiative in creating the internet. Al Gore. Very good. That, that was an easy one. That but was that was easy true, one. though. That ended up being, I mean, Al Gore did have a role in creating the internet. But he basically said, though, that he had invented the internet before. <laughs> but, I'm bad, I'm you know, enough. there you go. This one, I was surprised. Quote, facts are stupid things. Facts are stupid things. Sarah Palin? No, no, no. President or vice president. Oh, right. She never, that's right. She never exceeded it all. I wouldn't be surprised, though. Oh, <laughs> man. Facts are stupid things. President or vice president. See, I wouldn't believe Carter would say this. Uh, Trump. Close, though. Really? Bill Clinton? Nope. Who came after Carter? Oh, George Bush. I mean, no! senior. Not no! senior. Ronald Reagan. I'm sorry. Ronald, Ronald Reagan. Reagan. There Ronald you go. Ronald Reagan said that. Ronald Facts Reagan. Facts are stupid Facts things. Facts are stupid things. All right. <laughs> Here we go. Keep the order in your head, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Next quote. For seven and a half years, I've worked alongside President Reagan. We've had triumphs, made some mistakes. We've had some sex uh, setbacks. <laughs> <laughs> what? If you... George Bush. 
Jr. I mean, senior. That was George H.W. Bush Ah, Sr. campaigning in 1988. We've had some sex uh, setbacks. (laughs) Dirty, dirty sex. All right. Yeah. Next quote. It depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. <laughs> when he's been at, he's under pressure. It upon what the meaning yeah. of the word is, is. I want to do it in the voices, but then I'm going to give it away. Yeah, this is the Monica Lewinsky thing. Oh, I think so. Yes. No, a Whitewater. That's when Whitewater, he's been yeah. under pressure, right? He's being interviewed. Whitewater. Very good. Yeah, the chat's getting it. Clinton, Clinton. Very good. All right, next one. I've looked on many women with lust. I've committed <laughs> adultery in my heart many times. God knows I will do this and forgives me. <laughs> I've looked on many women with lust. I've committed adultery in my heart many times. God knows I will do this and forgives me. John F. Kennedy? No. Okay. Good guess. <laughs> Look, I was trying to... He would honest, say God does not forgive right, me. Right, right. An honest no, representation remember, character, right? I looked right? upon women with many lust. He just went for the whole thing. Yeah, he just went there. Yeah. Right. Um, man, that's a tough one. I would have thought Bill Clinton, but we've already did Bill Clinton. Um, Because that would have, again, perfect accuracy for Bill Clinton. I don't know. You got me on this one. I'm slumped. That was President Jimmy Carter. Really? Really. President Jimmy Carter. Oh, Jimmy Carter. Really? Uh Uh-huh. Why would you admit that? And somebody said, said, um, who say your mark? um, He said that in a Playboy interview. I appreciate the honesty of it. And yeah, I guess it's Playboy, so that makes sense. Makes sense. He's a guy, right? Yeah, men will be men. Exactly. I, I appreciate that. It's just shocking that he was said. I know. All right. So next quote. Why would Kim Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I would never call him short and fat? Oh, well, I try so hard to be his friend and maybe someday that will happen. Why would Kim Jong-un <laughs> insult me by calling me old when I would never call him short and fat? Oh, well. I try too hard to be his friend, and maybe someday that will happen. That has to be Trump. Why would Kim Jong-un insult me by calling me old when I could never call him short and fat? Oh, well. I try so hard to be his friend, and maybe someday it'll happen. That's correct. God, the way he talks. Is, like, when he was at the UN security thing, and he brought up, like, Rocket Man and all of the other stuff. Oh, man, the way he call talks. Call me old, I call, call him short and fat. It's like, you, you call him a... You, you call just them call two the bad back. things. Right, right, right. Exactly. right. Not just one, two. You've upped the ante. And it's so ridiculous. And yet it's dealing with another foreign power. It's so bizarre. Yeah, <laughs> it's so bizarre. All right, so this crazy. one's a little bit easy for those that, you know, need a, need a good pick-me-up. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I got. Tricky Dick. Tricky Dick. Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. I am not a crook. All right. <laughs> and then he was. Right, right, right. I love how was like, stopped on that. And then he was. All right. Next one. They misunderestimated me. <laughs> they misunderestimated me Who while campaigning in Bentonville, Arkansas. I want to say Bill Clinton, but that's no, not Bill Clinton. No, don't let the state fool you. That's just while they're campaigning. Okay, this is probably a vice president. Uh-uh. It's a president. It's a president. It's a president, folks. Oh, man, I don't know that one. I don't know that one. They misrep- I don't know that one. Okay, think of one of the dumbest presidents you know. Bill, uh, George Bush. 
George W. Bush. Oh, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Repeat it. How about immediately George yeah, W. Bush? George Bush. <laughs> Dumbest man on the planet. They Look, misunderestimated me. Joe Biden is rivaling that to me. It's like all of those idiots in Europe decided, yeah, we're going to go with the guy with dementia and a horribly low approval well, rating. Well, this is why I'm doing this. I don't want you all to feel like Joe Biden is the worst one. I'm trying to give him a pick-me-up here this morning. I'm beginning to think he's the worst one and that Trump might well, have been better up. at the end of this, we can decide. We've got a couple. We've got about maybe five more to go. This one. Go F yourself. That's <laughs> straightforward. Go F yourself. Said on the House floor. I'm sorry, on the Senate floor. Really? Go F yourself. This was a vice mind. president. It had to be a vice president. Okay, which one? It's not going to be Al Gore. He doesn't have it in him. He doesn't have the you know, courage to even say he anything like that. He was busy inventing the internet. Right, he was, right, right, he was in the internet. <laughs> um, so it had to be somebody with a, a bit more stones. Um, um, oh, what is his name? Dick Cheney? Yes. Oh, what is his name? Dick Cheney? Yes. Dick Cheney said it to Senator Patrick Leahy during an angry exchange on the Senate floor about profiteering by Halliburton. Wow. Back in 2004. Go F yourself. Just, man. Uh (laughs) Yeah, I can see him saying that. I can (laughs) see that. Yeah. All right. A zebra does not change its spots. (laughs) George. I want to say George Bush again. (laughs) No. And it's not Dan Quill. Yeah, no. This one's a vice president. Okay, so it's not Dan Quayle, it's not George Bush, it's not, um, it's not going to be George Bush Senior, Junior. No, I mean, he was never vice president. It's not Obama in the chat. Um, vice president? Who would say that? A zebra does not change its spots. I said I'm looking for it's come there, sorry. <laughs> Jenny, a zebra does not change its spots. Gerald Ford? No, no, it's not Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford was from Michigan. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> He'd be like, don't you know that that zebra doesn't change its spots? Yeah, I'm trying to think of the, the voice. The, uh, okay, I'm lost. A zebra does not change its spots, and you can find that out on what I invented, the internet. That was Al Gore? Al Gore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, All right. Al, I'm trying to back you up, bro. <laughs> second to last one. Second to last one. Happy New Year to all, including to my many enemies and those who have fought me and lost so badly, they just don't know what to do. Love. <laughs> Donald Trump. Donald. I love that. Mother Trump. I love that. Happy New Year to all, including my many enemies and those who have fought me and lost so badly, they just don't know what to do. Love. I love just love. All of those people that have basically failed. Happy <laughs> Congratulations, despite the fact that you've been against me and failed miserably to take me down. All right, now this one. This is the final one. And this one's the real kicker, folks. The quote is, As one computer said, If you're on the train and they say portal bridge, you know you better make other plans. That is so random. As one <laughs> computer said, if you're on the train and they say Portal Bridge, you know you better make other plans. Is that Obama? I don't know. As one computer said, if you're on the train and they say Portal Bridge, you better make other plans. I need a hint. I need a hint on that one. That one is so... I, I can't even give a hint because I don't even know what... The, 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 I don't know what it means. Is Portal Bridge a... Stop. 
As one computer said, <laughs> if you're on the train and they say Portal Bridge, you better make other plans. Is that a vice president or president? It's a president. Is it within the last 30 years? I'm going to shock all of you folks. Uncle Andre, let's play the clip. No verbal expression. Time is money. As one computer said, if you're on the train and they say Portal Bridge, you know you better make other plans. What does that mean? What, is that? what does that mean? Folks. What does that mean? I don't even know what that of the means. United States. I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? It means that uh, if you're on the Portal Bridge, if you hear Portal Bridge, you better make other plans. And why is the computer telling me this? You know what? Does he mean the person on the intercom? Is that what he means? Jamarl, we do not know. <laughs> For Joe Biden to say this, we need a key or something to give us an idea of what this means to understand and follow where he's going with that stuff. I mean, he just called Kamala Harris, what, his wife, apparently? No, 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 he called Michelle Obama. Oh, I'm sorry. It was His so confusing. And then first lady. Yeah. First lady and then vice president. Yeah, I had no idea who he was even talking about at that point. And now he's using these random. Is that can we, just can something we hear that-, that one more time, Uncle Andre? Just just for glitz and giggles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Here we go. No verbal expression. Time is money. As one computer said, if you're on the train and they say Portal Bridge, you know, you better make other plans. I don't know what that means. I still don't know what that means. I, I- All I know is that from now on, folks, if we're in a jam on this show, I'm going to be like, Portal Bridge! <laughs> Portal Bridge! Or at the very least, just make a mental note that if you're at Portal Bridge, your day is going to go very bad, according to Joe Biden. It's like what that computer said. Portal Bridge! Portal Bridge. The computer said it. You better make other plans, folks. Wow. I have no idea what that's... God, and, and I have folks, no idea what that means. I will let you know. Everybody's saying potato 2024. <laughs> Jamal right. has seen the prototype That for needs to be shirt. a shirt. That needs to be a shirt. I, I, I sent you the prototypes. We've got pierogi king, pierogi queen, prince, princess, and jester. Potato 2024. So everybody can get it in the family. And then potato 2024. I used to say a ham sandwich could beat so-and-so. A ham sandwich That's, could beat Joe Biden at this point. No, a potato, ham sandwich is actually very sophisticated. Potato 2024. Potato 2024. No, a ham sandwich is very sophisticated because you have bread, ham, cheese, you probably mayo, mustard, whatever your pick is. Yep. That is... Yep. That is Cooperation. They're together as a team. Yes. Potato is just a solid entity. You just slap it on the table and that's all you get. Ready to go. By the way, I love (laughs) Kim Kate. Portal Bridge is Farron's new safe port. Portal Bridge. Portal Bridge. (laughs) I love that. Portal Bridge. It's like, cut it out. Speaking of Portal Bridge, we're going to bridge this segment over. (laughs) (laughs) We're in safe words at this point. Yeah, we need to (laughs) call it. We're going to be hitting the um, page after a while. Look, you guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas. Bronzak, great segment. Thank you. You're welcome. That was awesome. I had to bring some funniness to the to the show today. Absolutely. We're going to be talking about unionization effort in um, New York with Ted Rawl. Congratulations to all of those guys. Chris Smalls. Whoop, whoop. You can come back to the show, bro. Come to the light. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Bronzak, back in a moment. Portal Bridge. Fault Lines. Lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. 
And I want to move to New York, where Amazon unionization effort has finally won out. Now, this had, fight had taken place in New York prior. It had taken place in Georgia. Amazon has been able to beat back the tide on unionization. And the reason is straightforward, right? If one facility can unionize, what about others? It breaks the mystique around this notion of the company fighting and being able to prevent their employees from unionizing. To have a conversation about this, we're joined with Ted Rawl. Ted Rawl is a political cartoonist and syndicated columnist, writer, author, and critically acclaimed book, The Stringer. Ted, how's it going, my man? You doing all right this morning? I'm doing great. A little disappointed to have been snubbed by the Grammys, but, you know, I'm used to being passed up. You were snubbed? What? All right. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Well, and, and, and bookmark that Grammy comment because we do have Zelensky's comment. He made an appearance last night. Oh. And we're going to get your reaction to that. We have the uh, soundbite for that. But let's get first to this Amazon. Yeah, so a historic vote, 2,654 for the union, 2,131 for Amazon. And this is Amazon workers at the warehouse in Staten Island, New York. And once before, you know, we've had Christopher Smalls come on the show, have a conversation about it, especially when he's lost. Um, we would try to get him on since he's won. No radio silence on that. Hopefully he'll get back to us. But this is momentous, right? I mean, I'm watching Jim Cramer, solemn sadness, just, you know, emoting this massive Herculean level of sadness on these capitalist rich man tears over this. But this is something for me or from my standpoint, a good thing. What is the reporting on this in New York? I'm curious on how the news is covering this, by the way. Are they considering this a victory or are they covering this as you know, a bad day <laughs> for for Amazon and his workers. What are your thoughts? Well, I think most New Yorkers uh, lean left, and uh, this is a town that's highly sympathetic to unions, even if, I mean, everybody knows a union member, even, or people who were in a union recently, uh, even though most New Yorkers are no longer, like most Americans, members of unions. So I think, um, you know, the, the reporting hasn't been, it hasn't really been viewed as that much of a local story in the same way that say, uh, you know, Amazon, the rejection of AOC to give tax breaks to Amazon to move into Queens that was viewed as a local story as well as a national story. This is viewed as like more of a national story. And there's something about the fact that it's way over on Staten Island that in the media verse, uh, which is so Manhattan centric, you know, that's not even an outer borough. That's kind of closer to New Jersey than it is to New York. It's not even Brooklyn. So, I think people kind of, I think psychologically it's viewed as even more of a national story. But I think, uh, you know, everybody I've talked to is surprised that the vote was not more of a landslide in favor of the union. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, Amazon obviously has a really terrible reputation as a place to work. Uh, that's why they're forced to run TV ads. You know, we're doing, a, we're going to, we're going to keep doing a better job for our workers. We haven't been doing a good job for our workers. So, um, you know, I, I, it's obviously great news. Um, I, my only, you know, I have to be a bit of a Grinch. I'm really annoyed at the major uh, national labor unions, that they weren't there from the beginning. And, and, you know, now, oh, well, you know, now that, you know, they did it themselves. Oh, well, now that, you know, big labor will get involved and try to do this in other places. I, I mean, that's good. But, I mean, they should have been there from the beginning. Really good point. I mean, why weren't they there in the beginning? I mean, like, I get that multiple efforts to try to unionize have been beaten back. And, you know, I did the video the other day um, basically making this kind of point that 
all of these guys, whatever you want to think about it from the standpoint of capitalists or whatever, whatever arrangement that you're going to basically go with, those people are in it together. And so, yes, the employees who basically make the products, who add their labor to it, that basically creates everything in the wealth that basically Jeff Bezos can basically allow and enjoy. Well, those people should have some say-so in regards to their capabilities or their autonomy within the company. And this allows them a vehicle for it. Um, why do you think the other labor unions didn't back them up on this? Meaning, why did they have to do this on their own? Well, I mean, first of all, American labor is in a, in a sad state. And I think they would, their leadership uh, would argue that uh, there's a, they have to pick their battles. Uh, they can't just, uh, you know, if they're, if they're not likely to win, then that's resources that are uh, not, that, that could have been better expended elsewhere. Um, I think there's also sort of a, like in the AFL-CIO, there's a general uh, view that unionism now is still to be directed primarily towards blue-collar jobs. And, you know, working in an Amazon warehouse strikes me as a blue-collar job. It is a blue-collar job, yeah. But but I think because it's Amazon and it's a .com, uh, you know, and, a lot, and they have a lot of younger employees, I think they're kind of viewed as sort of, again, psychologically, you know, it's kind of like maybe it's not the most, um, you know, it's not the, the, the most likely victory that they're going to have. So, I, you know, I, I think there's a lot, I can sort of see why the argument, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's a little ridiculous. I mean, that a company that is basically, people have been forced to urinate into cups or jars on, on the job because they don't get enough bathroom breaks. It's a little ridiculous that, that it's hard to, it's deemed difficult to unionize these people. They're not paid a fortune. They're not treated well. It's hard work. And, you know, in, and we're, in a, we're in, a, in the middle of a historic labor shortage. You know, if, if you get fired from Amazon, you, you could go land something similar or better somewhere else. So this seems like a really good time I mean, and plus, Jeff Bezos is the world's richest man. So, I mean, just the optics of this company that treats its workers terribly and that most Americans are customers of, you know, and it's just it just seems like this was an obvious thing that should have happened a long time ago. Well, you know, and then there was another thing um, as, uh, you know, Jamar was asking a question. I was looking this up because you're starting to see these commercials come out on TV where they're like, this new Senate Bill 2992 will get rid of your Amazon Prime. Tell Congress to vote against it. You know, it's like these little congressional ads. And what the ad is referring to in the analysis here, um, the American Innovation and Choice Online Act that was introduced by Republican Senator Chuck Grassley and Democratic Senator Amy Klobuchar to the Senate this past month. There was... Um, also a companion bill introduced to the House earlier this year. But the bipartisan legislation is part of a growing desire from congressional members to regulate big tech companies like Amazon, Facebook, Apple, and Google. Among its proposals, the bill aims to prohibit dominant platforms from abusing their gatekeeper power by favoring their own products over competitors that use their platforms um, as it says, and then, and then the clear on um, the bill's proposal taken aim at Amazon's practices of self-preferencing. So again, if you go on Amazon and you see that, you know, you're looking, for example, um, for example, you're looking for like a green screen for your YouTube studio and you, you know, you, you search green screen and the Amazon search engine and the green screen pops up, but immediately at the very top, it says bestseller, Amazon Prime, 
green screen and it's basically their label right. because a lot of times they'll look and see what are people buying, what are they, now let's make our own of it and then we'll push it to the top very much like what Google and Facebook does. So I feel like with this whole unionization passing, then you have this bill coming forward and and again, Congress and the lobbyists are trying to push it that you're going to lose your Amazon Prime when really it's just you're not going to see Amazon products come up first. It kind of seems like are we at the age where maybe this is the canary in the coal mine of Congress starting to maybe get after big tech a little bit? It could well be. I mean, you know, big tech, obviously, uh, I think in a way, um, the advantage that those of us who have been skeptical of this, to say the least, uh, over the last 30 years rise uh, is the fact that they've sort of been perceived as being biased in favor of the Democrats and giving more and donating more to Democratic congressmen than Republicans. So that kind of creates a wedge because Republicans have been resentful of not getting quite as much of that sweet lucre. And so now you're going to see a little bit of, you know, you can see an alliance of convenience uh, between some more left-leaning congressmen and, uh, and, and, and Republicans, maybe, although A.D. Klobuchar is certainly no one's idea of a progressive. Uh, there's still, uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, right now, big tech just still rules everything, right? I mean, it's like you still have, just think about all the apps that used to be on the Apple store that were actual businesses. I mean, you know, the flashlight was an app that someone sold. And now, and then, you know, of course, you know, Apple noticed, hey, uh, you know, we can, or the or uh, yeah, Apple was like, we can just, uh, you know, make that a feature on the phone and, and put these people out of business. And they said, that just keeps happening over and over and over, uh, where, you know, entrepreneurs develop a business, build it, and then it just gets, you know, basically the gatekeepers steal it, essentially, and then sell it themselves. Um, and it's almost, you know, it's, it's actually a serious innovation crusher. I mean, if I were in this business, I would say, well, what's the point? You know, I'll, I'll build up this brand and it'll just get lifted by like the Apple store or whatever. What's the point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now let's pivot really quick to the Grammys, which you were not a part of. Um, <laughs> neither of us were invited either. Um, but let's go ahead and play the clip. Um, it was a, um, it was a surprise, um, a surprise, uh, what's the word? Surprise appearance, a guest, a surprise guest, um, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky making a public announcement in front of his green screen, which I feel like they've kind of upped the lighting game a little bit. But if you've seen some of his former statements, um, like the green screen, it's been like really, really bad. And people, he's been like trolled like no other. Um, so this one was actually a little bit of a step up. But let's go ahead and take a quick listen as to what he said at the Grammys. The word, what's more opposite to music? The silence of ruined cities and killed people. Our children draw swooping rockets, not shooting stars. Over 400 children have been injured and 153 children died. And we'll never see them drawing. Our parents are happy to wake up in the morning in bomb shelters, but alive. Our loved ones don't know if we will be together again. The world doesn't let us choose who survives and who stays in internal silence. Our musicians wear body armor instead of tuxedo. They sing to their wounded in hospitals, even to those who can't hear them. But the music will break through anyway. 
We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. On our land, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs, the dead silence. Feel the silence with your music. Feel it today to tell our story. Tell the truth about the war on your social networks, on TV. Support us in any way you can, any but not silence. And then peace will come. To all our cities, the war is destroying. Chernigiv, Kharkiv, Volnovakha, Mariupol, and others, they are legends already, but they have a dream of them living and free, free, like you on the dreams. So, again, President Volodymyr Zelensky, he's gone around to basically almost every NATO country saying the same thing, um, hasn't gotten any traction except money. Uh, now he's going to the Grammys. Uh, your thoughts, Ted? Well, first of all, I've always wanted to hear a, a delivery that sounded like a cross between V for Vendetta and Ricardo Montalban. I was thinking Batman. <laughs> I was thinking Batman. Chris, like when it was like Batman's with that deep gravelly voice. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm look. I, I'm sorry. I, I thought it was. I think it's cheesy. Um, and uh, you know, it, it's also like. So does this mean that uh, you know we're going to see a lot more of this in the future? I mean, I just wonder like. You know, could uh, Saddam Hussein have given a similar message, you know, uh, 30 years ago? Um, you know, it's the whole thing is, um, it's, I mean, it just seems, it made me wish for the Oscars and the slap, you know. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's, it's, an, it's cringy. That's the word I'm looking for. It's so uncomfortable. It's inappropriate. Like, it, it's kind of like, okay, uh, you know, I don't blame Zelensky for trying to get all the PR he can. That's what you do in the age of social media. You just try to get the clicks. That's what he's trying to do. And, you know, you said, you know, he, the money, is, he's only getting the money. Well, I mean, you know, the money is, is better than nothing. So he's getting that. Um, but I just wonder, like, what exactly, what's the end game here? I mean, what we really need is... Uh, you know, we want this conflict to come in for a soft landing. Um, you know, we've all, we've already heard from uh, news reports that essentially he is willing and understands that he's going to have to agree to all the things that Russia wanted, the four main conditions. And that's probably going to happen anyway. So this whole conflict kind of needed, never needed to happen if they'd ever just gotten been serious about negotiating. So this whole thing, I don't know, it just feels like uh, the last line of, you know, of the last Sex Pistols concert, ever gotten the feeling that you've been cheated? Um, that it's it's just gross. I, I don't know. It left me with an uncomfortable feeling. Gross is an understatement. I mean, the reporting that came out in the Wall Street Journal was basically that um, Olaf Scholz and uh, um, Macron had basically offered him a deal in the beginning to say what they were saying behind the scenes anyway. And behind the scenes, they were telling him, "Look, you're not going to be part of NATO." And their thing was, "You need to say that aloud." And you need to say that openly, which was Russia's main condition. And so now they're basically offering something that if they would accept it on day one, if they would accept it in the beginning, none of this would have taken place. It is such a slap in the face. And it's like these kind of economic consequences that we're taking as a result of this. I mean, even if we're just looking at the United States, not the 10 percent inflation that just kicked up in Europe immediately on this notion of um, sanctions that these guys were putting on. But even just in the United States, this stuff has consequences. Joe Biden may be able to get the public to believe, hey, Putin did this. Putin is responsible for everything. But just like Trump and COVID, you have a situation where Trump is saying they're throwing Chinese people out of airplanes to give them uh, to infect Americans with COVID. OK, the American public may say, OK, fair enough. But they still blamed him for the number of people that basically died from COVID. 
And it's going to be the same thing with this. You're going to get inflation. You're going to get food costs going up. You're going to get across-the-board increases, not to mention a potential recession as a result of the geopolitical consequences of what these guys are doing abroad. And they can try to cover that with all the propaganda in the world. But at the end of the day, Biden is going to get hit with it. What do you think this is going to take place from the standpoint of Biden? Do you think that they're going to be able to basically, let's say, create a political context where Biden is not blamed? For the events that are taking place around the world, especially the economic consequences. What are your thoughts, Ted? I, look, it's a, I agree with you. It's a question of timing, though, right? So, uh, you know, will the chickens come home to roost before the midterms? I'm suspecting probably not, because that's coming up soon, and the propaganda machine is going is continuing to churn nicely for them. But you know, but in ter- in term in time for the Kamala Harris or whatever campaign in 2024, yeah, I mean, the economic consequences are going to be plain to see. Uh, certainly by the end of this year uh, and early next year. And I think it's, I mean, there's kind of, I can't even see the bottom of this bottomless pit in terms of, it could be worse than a recession. I mean, we're talking about, uh, you know, basically we're, we're cutting off our oil nose despite our, our, our oil glutton faces. This country and the whole world is completely dependent on Russian energy. Uh, you know, it's not just Eastern Europe. I mean, energy markets are not localized. I mean, I don't even understand half the coverage about, uh, you know, about this. Well, you know, like Eastern Europe will have a problem, but, you know, the United States won't be so bad. It's like it's a global market. There's a certain supply that affects the, pr- the, the prices globally. So, um, you know, we're, and when energy prices go up, everything goes up. Uh, wages are not going to keep up, even though they have been going up. They haven't been going up fast enough. So. Uh, you know, I, I, it's it's catastrophic, um, and whether Democrats will be held respond, uh, accountable for it. I mean, look, the Democrats are going to get wiped out this fall anyway. Uh, the, will they be wiped out more by this? Probably not by then. But you know, I, everyone's it's going to be clear to everyone that the equivalent of WMDs have not been found. That will be clear by next year. I want to pivot really quick to the Pope. Um, over the weekend in Malta, the Pope um, didn't say exactly I blame Russia for this conflict, but was kind of hinting at this being poor Ukraine, Russia bad, Ukraine good. And normally in the past, popes haven't really sided with one war or the other. Just it's it's popes have normally sided with just overall war is bad. However, there was some um, rumblings that the Pope secretly during World War II kind of sided with the Nazis. It was this really, it's this weird, not conspiratorial, but just this thing in, in the back of people's minds on that. But myself being a Catholic um, and many in the country being Catholic, um, kind of how did you, did you kind of have a stance on what the Pope had said? Because again, the Pope has kind of been silent on a lot of different things. Um, especially even, you know, in previous popes, you know, like the war in Iraq, what's been going on in Syria, what's been going on in Yemen. Here, all of a sudden, he has a stance on Ukraine. Your thoughts? I think, you know, look, I think uh, Pope Francis is does not want to take a side on this, but he's being pressured to, I mean, you know, everybody is, right? I mean, the three of us are now I'm getting them. Uh, you know, we're getting the if we're getting like emails from people who are like, you know, you should side with Ukraine. Everyone's siding with Ukraine. You know, what's the you know, come on, all the cool kids are doing it. Change your avatar. 
um, you know, you can imagine the pressure that's coming from, uh, you know, to basically the CEO of the Catholic Church. Uh, from from inside from other other world leaders and from you know within the the within the the Vatican hierarchy itself you know it's it's a PR thing and the question is you know how does Francis personally feel I think that's kind of neither here nor there I suspect he probably knows that it's bad politics to side to take a side here uh, you know popes are generally against war against suffering. Uh, and so he can make those kinds of statements. But in terms of, uh, you know, he also has to maintain relations with Russia and every, and, you know, and every other country. So it's, a, it's definitely a, uh, you know, I, I, think for, I think his tendency is going to be to remain silent and send out, you know, sort of like wishes for things to come to a, con- a peaceful conclusion as quickly as possible. I don't think he's ever going to blame, come out and blame Putin or Russia, like not overtly. Yeah, I just wanted to get your opinion on that. But I kind of want to shift over. You know, we had the Grammys. We're covering, covering all things domestic with you. I want to talk about really quick um, big tech because you have Twitter founder and former CEO Jack Dorsey um, saying that he regrets his role in centralizing the Internet, basically saying that in the early years of the Internet, Developers were trying to find ways to streamline this new technology, but also highlighted the need to make investors money to make them happy. Well, now you have breaking this morning, Tesla CEO, Elon Musk, he just bought 9.2% stake in Twitter, becoming the largest stakeholder for the social media giant. Now, Elon Musk before was talking about starting his own Twitter to counter what Twitter was doing as far as either shadow banning people or kicking people off, for example, because you had just a year ago, Twitter getting a new CEO. Now, instead of starting his own, it looks like Elon Musk might buy Twitter. (laughs) Um, You know, according to Bloomberg, Twitter shares soared by 26% in the pre-market trading. Um, Again, just coming days after hinting he might shake up the social media industry. Could we see more... Western oligarchs doing the same thing, do you think? Or what do you think this does for big tech, especially since we just had kind of a major censoring um, wave, especially at the start of and, and going into this Ukraine war? Well, you know, it's basically social media is uh, provides the same kind of power base that newspapers used to, right? And so you often don't really care if you're an American oligarch, as you put it, um, you know, whether you are making money or not, it's going to help you propagandize your own message. So, you know, think about like, uh, for example, the the LA Times is owned by a biotech billionaire. Um, You know, uh, there was, uh, what's his? uh, Washington Post. Jeff Bezos. The chain of newspapers, right. Washington Post, Jeff Bezos. Um, and so there's a long, there was a Mort Zuckerberg, real estate developer here in New York City. He bought the New York Daily News, owned it for many years. And probably the best example is the New York Observer, which was a small paper, but it was like a paper, a boutique paper sort of read by the elites of New York City. And it was owned by uh, a series of, of wealthy people. And at one point, uh, Jared Kushner uh, owned it and ran it. And, you know, basically it never made a dime. No one cared. It didn't need to make any money because it was about, it was about purchasing influence. So I think we will, you know, I think 
a certain class of oligarch will see this as a useful part of their portfolio, even if it doesn't seem likely like it's necessarily going to be the best you know, business investment. It's not going to be about the dividends. It's going to be about the PR and the ability to uh, flex muscle in Congress and so on. To a guy like Elon Musk, you know, who's really pushing the envelope in some stuff that, you know, could face some serious regulatory pushback, you know, like SpaceX and, uh, and um, self-driving cars, uh, you know, stuff that kind of scares the American public in some ways, um, you know, that, that could be incredibly useful and powerful. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to bring up one last question really quick. We got about three minutes left. Last night, circumventing back to the show you weren't invited to, Louis C.K. won a Grammy, okay? Louis C.K. was canceled a couple years back for allegedly masturbating in front of women in his um, dressing room. Um, You had the whole debacle that happened with Will Smith last weekend. He has since stepped down from the Academy board, but... The Academy is saying that they don't condone violence. However, you still have Harvey Weinstein, Roman Polanski. You have all of these other people that have done violent things, um, including raping women. But with Louis C.K., and granted, he's not in the same caliber, but there was he did do some shady stuff. If he is now given an award after being previously canceled, you know, what is the whole who gets forgiven, who doesn't? Where are we at in cancer culture and where do you think we're going, Ted? We got about two minutes. Well, Louis C.K. was like right on the edge of mm-hmm. cancel culture thing, right? I mean, I think a lot of people, you know, they when they did a deep dive into his case, they thought, well, you know, he didn't, you know, it, it was. It seemed like it was sort of technically consensual, right? He asked, "Hey, do you mind if I?" And no one said no, so he took that as a yes. Not quite a, not really a Harvey Weinstein. Uh, you know, One of those no means yes things. <laughs> her dorm. I mean, they're chasing her around her hotel suite, right? Um, so, uh, or, you know, Bill Cosby or, you know, anything like that. It's it's different. So I think, and it, you know, it's really interesting because it's, a, it's all about crisis management. Uh, Louis C.K. refused to be canceled. He, he did the smart thing. He sort of went away for six or 12 months, gradually poked his head out like a meerkat, and, uh, you know, it's, and then uh, represented himself into the public. Uh, you know, it was just exactly the right tone for what he did. And I, so I think each case is individual. Um, I think people, there's been so much pushback now uh, against cases like that, uh, that, you know, I think, I think that the pendulum is starting to go back the other way. People are just tired of it. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean, I'm not even saying that it's right or wrong, but I think it's, People are wary of it. It just seems like, you know, the witch trials are, are, are drawing to a conclusion. Basically, they ran their course. Um, Ted Roll, thank you, my man. Always appreciate you Thanks, joining Ted. us. Ted Roll is a political cartoonist and writer who is the author of the critically acclaimed book, The Stringer. You guys are listening to Fault Lines, Thomas Bronzak. Back in a moment. Fault Lines. Live from Louis C.K.'s green room dressing room, (laughs) sitting atop the transmission tower of truth, taking down hypocrisy one lie at a time. In the ladies' corner, my trolls call me Moscow Mary, but I'm your Catholic pierogi princess, journalist extraordinaire, American 
Farron Franzak. And in the left corner, I'm your indefatigable, your ever-vigilant, your last man on the wall, your political analyst, Jamaral Thomas. Which means you're listening to Franzak and Thomas. So during the break, Jamaral's like, I didn't know you were a Catholic. I didn't. And I was like, yeah, I went to Catholic school my entire life. That's why I swear so much. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a little convo again, like in our 30 second break. I was like, yeah, I can't stand the Pope. You, on the other hand. I like the Pope. I don't hate the Pope. Is he your Pope, though? Are you Catholic? No, by no stretch of the well, imagination. Then he's not your pope. Yeah, he's not my Pope. I mean, by no stretch of the imagination. I am not, um, I'm not a religious person. Um, more into woo woo stuff. Yes, religious, not so much. And I you guess. You say voodoo? Woo woo. Woo-woo. It's um, like 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 esoteric or stuff like that. Like more spiritualistic stuff. Less. Do you believe the... there's a higher power? Yes. Okay. Well, yeah. I believe there's something else. I'm sorry. When you say woo-woo, I just think woo-woo. No, 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 no. <laughs> I believe there's something else. I, I, I believe there's more than this. Um, but no, we I, like the Pope. I mean, he tends to be trends to the left. Um, and like I said, I remember when we ended up going to Rome, we accidentally landed in the Vatican um, and accidentally just so happened to be there on the day that the Pope was coming out. And yeah, it is a really heady experience. Did you see him in the Pope Mobile? No, I didn't see him in the Pope Mobile. He was in this little window. Like it's like this little oh, okay. tiny inch person that comes out in the window and everybody just immediately turns and just looks. Uh-huh. You have thousands of people on a dime. Everybody's looking at this very heady experience. Um, but no, all things being equal, I don't hate this guy. And all things being equal, him in from standpoint of politics, he tends to trend to the left. Now, why don't you like the Pope? So growing up Catholic, um, and, and here's the other thing, too, I will tell you. A fun, a fun Farron Franzak um, family story. So uh, JP2, or John Paul II, mm-hmm. um, the Pope before Benedict, um, who we always say is like the world's greatest Pope, at least for the Polish Catholics, um, being my father, Um my grandmother was born in the same area as John Paul II. Okay. Um, and sh- there's a certain dialect that they speak. So when John Paul II came to Chicago for a visit, my grandmother was actually his translator. Interesting. So she got to meet him and all that stuff. And I remember hearing this story maybe like five years ago from my father. And we were like, Dad, why didn't you tell us this like yeah. way sooner? You never I would walk around yeah. telling everybody like, excuse me, <laughs> I have a, a direct line to the Pope. Excuse me, you know, <laughs> do I get a free meal because I have a direct line to the Pope? No, uh, just checking, you know, I would have used that everywhere. Yeah. But, but yeah, no. So, um, yeah, it's one of those things where, yeah, we were big JP2 fans, but no, but so growing up in Catholic school, you know, it, it's very strict, um, you know, and, and like I said, six siblings, we all went to Catholic school. Times I hated it, other times I loved it, but it did keep us in line. But yeah, just everything was very strict. And then you have this Pope that comes in and he's like, do what you want, not a problem. And you're like, wait a minute. I've been living my life to the, like the papal idea. And like, I've been living this strict life. And now all of a sudden it's like, party it up, Catholics. Like, no, there's no way. So yeah. he didn't, I never took it as he said, party it up. From my standpoint. No, 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 but I'm just saying. From my standpoint, it is still too strict. So from his standpoint, him, Let's release that. Okay, first the of world all, has again, evolved. Too strict. <laughs> you sir don't even know the beginning movement of strict. Again, growing up in a Catholic church with the stand up, sit down, peace be with you, peace be with you, all the I mean everything. You oh strict. If you think he's evolved still strict, you would have never survived Catholic school. No, I wouldn't have. And I, you know, my experience in church was basically harassing the pastor. Why are you doing this? Why do you believe this? Why is this why are we here? 
yeah, I was that kid. And so, no, I didn't necessarily take to it one and way or the other. And what's funny, though, is I was the same thing. Yeah. I, but in, 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 you know, because in Catholic school, you have religion class. Yeah. And I always say, <laughs> you, you, folks class, have, you folks have heard me say this quote before. The best religion teacher that I had, Dr. Mordenti, I would always ask him, because one of the things was, is my favorite Broadway show is Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar. That is so good. Superstar. Well, yeah. I, I saw a version of it in the hospital one day, and I was sitting there. I was riveted. I was like, oh, my yeah. God. So this the whole is so thing good. about, so that's the show that got Andrew Lloyd Webber um, excommunicated from the Catholic Why? Church. Oh, because, because, because Jesus Christ is a no, superstar. <laughs> nope. It's because the whole show is through the eyes of Judas. And it's Judas being like, yo, Jesus, like, calm down. Like, calm down. Interesting. And saying how Judas was the one trying to reel Jesus in, but uh-huh. Jesus was kind of over the top. It's and, a point of view. And it's it's a point of view. That's right. And again, and it's it's my favorite my favorite solo all the time, uh, of all time, the heaven on their minds. Listen, Jesus, I don't like what I see. All I ask is that you listen to me. It's so good. Yeah, oh, your followers are blind. Too much heaven on their minds. It was beautiful, but now it's sour. It's so good. I just remember oh. watching Yeah, that got him excommunicated. I just remember being in the hospital. It was on TV one day, and it's not something that you turn to, right? So it's just already on air. And I was riveted. You were just like, and it was so good. Buzz? Tell me what's happening, or what's the buzz? Tell me what's happening. <laughs> That's from Jesus Christ. Yeah. I just thought it was so good. It's amazing. But yeah, so that got him excommunicated. But I would always ask in my religion class, I was like, Dr. Mordenti, if God knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus, why did he send him to hell? If he knew he was this vessel, exactly. if he knew he was this vessel, how do you justify that? Him, and he was just like, you know, but basically, he was the one that told me you should always ask questions of your government and your religion because yes. if you can't you're in the wrong government or you're in some kind of crazy cult they're you don't tell know you yet faith faith and it's like well no god created a personality an individual unit of consciousness that he knew was going to be suffered and torment for eternity how is that right gotta explain that mm-hmm. faith yeah okay sure that was me right i was that six-year-old yeah okay this doesn't make sense to me um yeah i wouldn't survive do that. I didn't even make it through religious school when I went to my mom tried to send me to it. And so I think it lasted They're for like, like maybe yeah, a year. This is Thomas. Uh, Jamal's got to go. <laughs> I, yeah, pretty much. I mean, that basically was the way it ended up. I had straight A's, but still didn't get along with the teacher. All right. Well, let's get into some headlines before I just start belting out the entire musical. Um, <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm good. Thank you, though. Um, Russian Prime Minister Mikhail Ms. Huston announced Monday that starting from uh, from April 9th, anti-pandemic restrictions on charter flights are to be removed. Saying, quote, first of all, I will say a few words about the document signed today, which was eagerly awaited by the air transportation industry and, of course, by our citizens starting from April 9th. We are lifting the restrictions meant to fight the coronavirus infection, which applied to our regular and charter flights between Russia and a number of other countries, he told legislators ahead of his report to the state Duma. In your national news, three GOP states announced that they have sued the Biden administration over its decision to rescind the Title 42 public health order, arguing that the decision is unlawful and poses a threat to the country, Fox News reports Monday. The suit... Quote, this suit challenges an imminent man-made self-inflicted calamity, the abrupt elimination of the only safety valve preventing this administration's disastrous border policies from devolving into an unmitigated catastrophe, the lawsuit filed by the attorney generals of Arizona, Louisiana, and Missouri reads. Former Vice President Mike Pence has claimed that Joe Biden has done more damage to America than any president in modern history. Speaking of Fox News, Pence noted that in 14 short months, 
Inflation at a 40-year high and gasoline prices are now up 70%. We have the worst crisis on our border in American history, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, the mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic. The list goes on. The ex-U.S. vice president added, On the situation with refugees, Pence warned that Biden rescinding the Title 42 would further exacerbate the migration crisis in the U.S. In your international news, Russia will once again request to hold a U.N. Security Council meeting on the matter of Ukrainian city of Bukha after a previous request did not receive approval from the U.K., another permanent member of the council, the Russian Foreign Ministry has stated. Quote, yesterday, the British presidency of the U.N. Security Council did not agree to a meeting of the Security Council on the situation in Bukha. Russia today will again demand the convening of the U.N. Security Council in connection with the criminal provocations by the Ukrainian military and its radicals in this city, Russian Foreign Ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said. Russian President Vladimir Putin has congratulated Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban and Serbian President and the Serbian President on their elections. Speaking at Vucic's re-election, Putin said he hoped to build the strategic partnership between Serbia and Russia. Now, in regards to Orban, Putin stressed that he hopes to continue the Russian Federation's partnership with Hungary, who is Moscow's closest ally in NATO. The Iranian foreign ministry said Monday that it will consider returning to the JCPOA talks in Vienna if it is to finalize the 2015 nuclear deal. Quote, we will not be going to Vienna for new negotiations, but to finalize the nuclear agreement, foreign ministry spokesman Saeed Khatib Zadah, who told reporters in Tehran. At the moment, we do not yet have a definitive answer from Washington, he added. In your tech news, Twitter founder and former CEO Jack Dorsey posted Sunday that he regrets his role in centralizing the internet. Dorsey lamented the early years of the internet when developers were finding ways to streamline new technology. The Twitter founder highlighted the need to make investors money as one of the main catalysts that allowed advertising to dominate the internet and eventually lead to its centralization. In your business news, Tesla CEO and Western oligarch Elon Musk has purchased a 9.2% stake in Twitter Inc., becoming the largest stakeholder for the social media giant. According to Bloomberg, Twitter shares soared by 26% in the pre-market trading, a regulatory filing on early Monday revealed. This purchase by Musk comes just days after hinting he might shake up the social media industry. The United States will give an additional $50 million in assistance money to Moldova, adding to the already $20 million promised to help the Eastern European national deal with the influx of Ukrainian refugees. The announcement was made by the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who was participating in a joint press conference with Moldovan Prime Minister Natalia Gravrilita. And in your funny, surprising WTF news... A German man received 90 COVID-19 shots. Yes, 90 COVID-19 shots. You heard that right, folks. Over the course of several months until he was finally caught by the German authorities Sunday. According to an AP report, the man received the 90 shots in order to sell the COVID-19 vaccination cards to prospective customers. And your holidays for today. Error 404 Day, Bonza Bottler Day, Hug a News Person Day, because we all could use one right now, 
Um, International Carrot Day. It is also the anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. down in Memphis, Tennessee, which crazy. Um, it's also Tell a Lie Day, Victims of Violence Holy Day, Vitamin C Day, and Walk Around Things Day. Those are your headlines for Monday, April 4th, 2022. Well, Jamarl is not back, so you know what happens. Um, go ahead and start trolling the chat, folks, of Jamarl. Where are you? Jamarl, what's taking so long? Jamarl, WTF. <laughs> I love trolling Jamarl when he's gone because when he's gone, I have control of the show. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I wanted to talk about really quick before we um, get to our favorite Scotty Nell Hughes Um I'm going to be talking about right after the break, and then we'll also be taking your calls as well. 202-521-1320, 202-521-1320. Um, we're going to be talking about what happens when the online troller gets trolled. We'll be talking about that right after the break. Again, go ahead and give us your calls, 202-521-1320, and we'll be right back after this quick break. Fault lines. Fault lines. And welcome back to Radio Sputnik. I'm Farron Franzak. Not sitting next. Oh, here he is. Here he is. Welcome to the program. Welcome. We'll be taking your calls. 202-521-1320. I'm assuming it was for parking. No. Okay. But um, it is national, national tell-a-lie day, so had, go ahead and, and lie to us. <laughs> I wasn't going to lie. But I had infinite confidence that you were going to handle it. Of course I did. And I was like, she's going to handle it. She knows what she's doing. She is a star, celeb, D-lister. <laughs> she can handle it. I'm a star. I just figured you were going to sing Jesus Christ Superstar for the um, last five minutes. And my mom actually just texted me that the Vatican, what did you text me, Mama Sue? The Vatican endorses Superstar Musical. Do they? This actually just came out. See? And you were <laughs> ragging on this Pope, and this Pope is actually okay. you know backing what? up the thing to which you described an immense amount of value. You know what? Um, Farron likes this Pope, too. She needs to take, she's retracting all of those other things. He loves Jesus Christ Superstar. He's bringing it back in. Um, what's his name? Is no longer excommunicated. You know what? The world is great. Mama Franzak, I want you to call in 202-521-1320. Mama Franzak, call in right now. And I want you to, to, to back me up on this Pope story. Because, yeah. She, I trust you. I believe you. If you tell no, no, me you, that. You have you, to hear it from my mother who grew up, you know, longer in the Catholic Church, obviously, than I did. Because she's got some qualms. And qualms with the Catholic she, Church in general or with this Pope? I, I think with the Pope, with a lot of, a lot of people. In the Catholic Church. What I was doing out there was having a conversation with the other reporters who was questioning the stuff that's taking place in regards to the war crime stuff. And we need to get John Kiriakou on because I want to get do. his perspective on But I did, I did want to go into this one thing that oh, I I'm sorry, before please. the break. Um, so you had Taylor Lorenz, who was formerly a reporter at the New York Times business section covering topics related to internet culture. Um... And, oh, my mom says it was, it, it approved it in 1999. Mm, I don't know. But she now is at the Washington Post. Well, over the weekend, this interview came out. Now, for those that don't know Taylor Lorenz, she has covered extensively 
you know, Twitter, Facebook, anything involved is what's happening around the internet. However, Taylor Lorenz also has been known to many YouTubers in the community, for example, many, many Twitter stars, what have you, for consistently trolling these people. Really? And like, for example, there was a thing where she had doxed one of, um, I think it was one of the, the people's names. I can't remember. Like I said, don't quote me on this. But basically, she's made other people's lives living hell. Miserable, yeah. Yeah, she's, she's doxed people's parents' names. Oh, where that's people have gotten Where parents have gotten death threats. There was a whole thing where she doxed an address. Um, she's gone after, you know, a number of prominent YouTubers and just people in the pop culture sphere. And what did she do? I mean, she's just a reporter? She just was a reporter on, on uh, internet culture. Okay. And this was her over the weekend talking about what it was like when the trolled becomes trolled. Uh-oh. And this is what she kind of, you know, says that she went through. Let's go ahead and take a listen. I've had to remove every single social tie. I had severe PTSD from this. I, I contemplated suicide. It got really bad. You feel like any little piece of information that gets out on you will be used by the worst people on the internet to destroy your life. And it's so isolating. And terrifying. It's horrifying. I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's overwhelming. It's really hard. Mm -hmm. overwhelming it's so hard it's overwhelming yeah look i, I don't want to put fun at it but the fact is chickens roost etc yeah now it says um uh independent journalist gren greenwald um wrote a scathing thing about her on twitter <laughs> saying quote the most extraordinary part of this all is that the only reason anyone is talking about Taylor Lorenz is because she twice fabricated serious accusations about someone. So by equating criticisms of her with abuse, she gets to somehow become the victim and her sins are absolved. Exactly. And, exactly. and this is the one thing where you were talking about hit pieces. Yeah. You know, everybody... I have your, I will give you your right to free speech. You can write a hit piece on anybody. Yeah, but she's doxing people. Meaning she's, right. the thing that she's crying, oh, it's so overwhelming. It's so overwhelming. I had to get rid of all my social media. Tears, river tears. When you're doing that to somebody else, you didn't care. You didn't care. You didn't care. But now, river tears where I'm supposed to lend some of myself, my sympathy to you. Yeah. It's not there. I'm sorry. You spent your time trying to make people's lives miserable, and now you are basically getting hit with the same thing. Fair yeah. enough. And you even have, you know, um, uh, Tiana Lowe from the Washington Examiner saying, too bad she didn't stop to think before trying to destroy other people's lives with falsehoods or hit pieces. Um, Taylor Lorenz did this to herself. Um, and here's where it all kind of started. You had Tuesday night's show, um, Fox News host Tucker Carlson pointed out her privileged position at the uh -oh. New York Times, noting that Lorenz actually has one of the best lives in the country. Yeah. Um, his commentary offended the Times Public Relations Department, which responded in a huff um, on Wednesday afternoon with embarrassing results. You know, um, <laughs> that you know, she, Taylor Lorenz is this talented New York Times journalist doing timely and essential reporting. Journalists should be able to do their jobs without facing harassment. Okay. Really? Okay. So uh, just ivory tower. How much have you gotten harassed in the past month? Quite a lot. How much have people at RT America, and I know Scotty, when she comes on, she'll be able to talk about it. People showing up at her home in Nashville. And by the way, not crying a river of tears over it. Oh, so overwhelming. 
No, you just do your job. You do your job. You deal with it. But in and, this very specific situation, she was, the fact that she was willing to basically dox people and now looking, sitting in this situation, I'm, I'm so pathetic in this moment. It's so mm-hmm. overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. And it says, you know, the Times obviously can't uh, tell criticism from harassment. Nope, they can't. They and Lorenz can't take criticism, but they can sure dish it out to people they don't like. After all, Lorenz, one of the paper's tech journalists, was waging a strange war on internet privacy, notoriously smeared famed venture capitalist and Netscape co-founder Mark Anderson, while stalking his talks on the new social media app Clubhouse, which allows people to host conversations that go unrecorded. Um... You know, the other thing about um, she was immaturely bragging about getting a Clubhouse burner account to spy on his chat room. Um, She claimed that he used the R slur um, during a Clubhouse chat while discussing how stock chat form on Reddit escalated to uh, the price of of the GameStop stock. Um, Has kind of been this like hall monitor on social media and has, you know, severely called for the harassment on other people. But then when it's finally turned around again. Can't take it. This is, oh my God. It's overwhelming. It's social media. You know, for example, that's the other thing. I, I will say this. I have kind of gone a little bit dark on YouTube and took a lot of my stuff down because I know that CNN is trying to do a hit piece on us. And, you know, I I know that um they're they're trying to find footage and what have you. Nobody from Sputnik is going to talk, um, which I think makes kind of their balanced reporting on it is going to be a little bit tough. But again, it's just, as I've said it was before, never going to be balanced. as I said, to, as <laughs> I said never. to that political reporter, you know, it's one thing to go after other journalists, you know, because I don't agree with you doesn't make me not a journalist. Exactly. You know, and, and there's plenty of journalists out there who don't agree with the mainstream media. For example, Glenn Greenwald. You have Richard Medhurst. You have... Um, the gentleman geez. from Newsweek who couldn't even identify himself because he didn't necessarily want to get flack for giving an honest opinion on what was taking place on the ground yeah. in Ukraine. I mean, you you could just name a number of them. Chris Hedges, the, the late and great Ed Schultz. Oh, gosh. Garland Nixon. John Kiriakou. I mean... Michelle Witte. I mean, all of these journalists, and granted, yes, I just named a bunch from uh, from Sputnik, but Phil Donahue, MSNBC, Chank Unger, um, or Chank Uger, sorry. Yeah, um, even Anna Kasparian, you know, I mean, all these, all these other people who are alternative journalists. And here this girl was being like the hall monitor and the snitch. And these people have taken harassment 24-7. Even, I'll even go as far to say a crystal ball or a sager. You know, not that they're, you know, with the mainstream, but they are independent. They have their own show. I'm not talking about their talking points, but sometimes they will have something to say that's of the opposite effect. For example, you had Crystal Ball literally going for the jugular with AOC. Right. That is not a platform that MSNBC would be about. Oh, no. She would get raked in over the hot coals and be like, shut up yes. or get out the door. Oh, yeah. You know, and that's the thing is, is that when you have these hall monitors and then the, the script is flipped... I, 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 I had to shut down everything because of the harassment. Well, welcome to the world, honey. How's, how does hypocrisy taste? Doesn't go down smooth, does it? Doesn't go down smooth at all. Not getting on TV and saying, it's so overwhelming. Yeah. I, that's the favorite part. And it's you so know what's funny is on Twitter when RT America shut down and for a whole week, I mean, they danced on their graves. They danced on our graves. Dance on their got graves. We all trolled. Yep. You know, and it, it, it was threats, a lot. Attacks. I mean, like, for God's sake, I mean, Manila Chan, uh, Manila Chan was getting death threats. I mean, think about that. 
And from the standpoint where the U.S. media was basically saying, you know what, we don't want to engage your point of view, so we're just going to call it propaganda. That's our way of subverting your point of view in a way where we don't have to engage it honestly. And yeah, all sorts of attacks from all corners of social media and everything else with various people trying to shut and get people fired. Meaning it's not just, oh, you're attacking me on social media. It's so overwhelming. It's not just that. It's we're trying to make you lose your job. That's overwhelming, not being able to pay your bills. But for her, it's so overwhelming because people troll her on, t- on, on um, internet. Yeah. Get over it. Get over it. I have no sympathy in this situation. Get over it. Let's take, do uh, you want to take one quick call really Absolutely. quick? Uh, let's go to Tarif in New Orleans. Tarif, real quick, what you got? I have two comments. It's going to be quick. <laughs> I mean, you know, what, what happened was going on in Bachi, Ukraine. They have videos circulating of Ukrainian soldiers that are into the city. One of the axis commander, hey, look, it's a um, civilian wearing a white armband, which means pro-Roach Russian. And then he say, can he shoot him? His commander said yes, and he shot him. So I've been looking at those clips this morning, um, Tarif, and, you know, we had Mark Sloboda talking about it. And here's another one, Mayor of Buka. In the video said that March 31st, he had confirmed officially that Russian troops had left Buka two to three days until Russian atrocities. And so, I mean, the, question, the point that they're making is basically, if these atrocities took place and if these, if so overwhelming and there were so many, why didn't the mayor say so when he had the opportunity to say so? Why wait two or three days for this to take place? So that's to your point. I got to be honest. I don't know what took place there. And at this point, it's the fog of war. And I can't necessarily trust any of the accounts because the people have their own point of view and their own wants. But, what is, but what's your other comment, Tarif? Other comment. Let me, before I get to the other comment, the Russian left March the 30th. And once the examiners get there, because from what I understand, the examiners taking the time getting out. They can, uh, when they view, review the bodies, they can find out how long they've been dead. Right. Second comment is dealing with me. I got something all get off my chest. Um, April the 18th is coming up. And that's in my doctor's appointment at the VA. I feel like I, I might be set up <laughs> on a frame because if I ever testify, people go in jail. So I believe that something's going to be done when I give my urine test and my blood test where they're going to say they got something in my blood, something in my urine. All right. I have people my that I know, my family, friends. That's on drugs. I feel and believe they've been compromised. So um, I think maybe some of my food been tampered with, or maybe I'm just making this up. But the more and more you get to election year, it feel like, you know, I got little strange things happening to me. I can't really explain it, but in the court of law, when things start coming out, it can make sense that, you know, all this is going on in this world. I got my case. You got Julian Science. These people are not playing, and you can't play with them. And I'm just letting everybody know I'm nonviolent, I'm not homicidal, and I'm not suicidal. I, I, I believe in peace and telling them the truth, and I want to continue to tell the truth on this program. I don't want to spend time in jail in a mental hospital, all right? So just letting everybody know that I'm peaceful, I'm nonviolent, and I'm not suicidal or homicidal uh, I'm about telling the truth. Thank you all for taking my call today. God bless you all. Thanks so much, Tariq. We appreciate you. Let's head over to Eric in Virginia. Eric, 
What you got? Hi, I just, I just want to tell you as as it regards this whole cancelization of of alternative media that's speaking truth to power. I just want to say, first they attack you, then they laugh at you, then they ignore you, and then you win. But you guys are between stage two and stage three, where they're laughing at you and they're ignoring you. You're somewhere in between. Just keep it up, and uh, and not ignoring us and, now. And I got to tell you that you that's that's a quote on the walls at RT America. And I'm trying to remember it was it was Mahatma Gandhi that said that, correct? I believe so. Something. Yep. So we're in stage two and three. So once we win, let me know when we get to that stage. Right. <laughs> right. Let me right. know. Call us when we get to that stage of you win. <laughs> Eric and Virginia, thank you so much. Uh, keep it up, guys. Love you guys. Thank-, thank you so much. We love you too. All right. When we come back after the break, we've got the one, the only, my favorite girl in the world, Scotty Nell Hughes. We are talking about Jen Psaki. I don't know if you guys saw this over the weekend. Jen Psaki, late Friday night, was grilled by the White House press corps asking, hey, we're getting some rumblings that you might be leaving this job and heading over to MSNBC. What's that about? And we have a response along with Scotty Nell Hughes' response because she has a lot, I guess, uh, on the, um, she's got a lot of experience as working as a communications director and being in, in campaigns and seeing what happens. Oh, so she can give she a personal point of view. She knows how the are made. Yeah, that should yeah. be good. So we're going to be talking to Scotty Nell Hughes and listening to Jen Psaki's excuses coming up in two minutes after the break. Rumble.com slash fault lines. Share with your friends, your family, your cats, your dogs, your hamsters. Rumble.com slash fault lines. We're back in two. Fault lines. Fault lines. Welcome back to Fault Lines on Radio Sputnik. My name is Jamal Thomas. I'm joined with my co-host, Farron Franzak, coming to you live out of our station in Washington, D.C. If you guys live in the D.C. area, you can catch us on radio at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM. We're also kicking around in Kansas City at 102.9 FM and 104.7 FM. If you guys are digging what Farron and I are putting down, whatever platform you're consuming this content on, give us a like and share that audio or video. If you want to join in on the conversation, you can do so with a chat, a tweet, and a course. You can reach us by phone at 202-521-1320. Your engagement helps make this show what it is, so definitely don't be shy. And as you heard, as Farron was kind of alluding to before we hit the break, Jen Psaki, Jen Psaki, press secretary, Jen Psaki. Well, there are rumblings, as she said, that she's basically leaving. It seems that the people are leaving the ship in this very specific situation. What does this mean for Joe Biden? And more importantly, why is she leaving? Um, let's have a conversation about it. You are joined with the one and only Scotty Nail Hughes, friend of the show and regular at this point. She's a political commentator and former host of RT America on News Views. Hughes, Scotty, welcome. How's it going this morning? Good morning, Mama Sita. <laughs> Good morning. Well, I finished my normal rounds of dropping kids off at school and was very shocked this morning when I got online and I watched the Grammys last night. I know you've talked about this. And the pushback, the overwhelming pushback that the world is having, but especially even, you know, here in the U.S., to Zelensky's appearance last night in the middle of Nicki Minaj and uh, the tribute to Foo Fighters, we get, uh, we get Zelensky in it, um, which he, I mean, he, he's had quite a great musical performances in the past. So of course, he would be on the Grammys. Mm-hmm. 
people really questioning the, they not getting the response that I think the the Grammys and Zelensky was wanting because of the fact that here you have a man who's supposed to be fighting a war and a part of a tribute, and yet you don't even use a Ukrainian musician as a part of the tribute. It really confirmed what a lot of us have been saying all along, that this has really just been one big PR campaign uh, from from the West to try to win uh, this war, which has nothing to do with the actual problems that the war is trying to address. We have the clip. So let's do this. Let's play the clip. This is Zelensky. This is what you were referring to. The war. What's more opposite to music? The silence of ruined cities and killed people. Our children draw swooping rockets, not shooting stars. Over 400 children have been injured and 153 children died. And we'll never see them drawing. Our parents are happy to wake up in the morning in bomb shelters, but alive. Our loved ones don't know if we will be together again. The war doesn't let us choose who survives and who stays in internal silence. Our musicians wear body armor instead of tuxedo. They sing to their wounded in hospitals, even to those who can't hear them. But the music will break through anyway. We defend our freedom to live, to love, to sound. On our land, we are fighting Russia, which brings horrible silence with its bombs. The dead silence. Fill the silence with your music. Fill it today to tell our story. So I think we kind of get the point there that uh, many people in the chat asking if he's auditioning for Batman. Yeah, but, Batman. He sounds like Christian but Bale. It, it was a little weird, a little, I don't know. But Scotty, your your thoughts when you first saw this, because a lot of people, as you said, and I'm actually surprised, you know, as you said, seeing a lot of blowback. I'm I'm shocked, actually. Well, you should have. I'm very shocked. At the same time, you're also finally getting the truth out there. You know, we're finding out there was, you know, a story a couple of weeks ago that I know Farron, you got annihilated. People kept pointing to you. I got it. Was the woman that happened to also be an influencer that was supposedly had to, to run for her life with her baby as maternity ward because the Russians were bombing the maternity ward. And as it turns out, once she was able to get to safety and she did her interview, she said, no, 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 that's not the story. It was the Ukrainian soldiers that came in, took our food, took our medical supplies and kicked us out of the hospital and had camera crews there. And of course, these were Western camera crews that could not. And we weren't able to actually, you know, say what we wanted to say because there were right, these same Ukrainian soldiers were right there. Cameras, they speak Ukrainian. So, of course, the West could not translate. Um the truth is finally coming out. There's a video right now. They're showing this picture of this woman who was tortured and raped, uh, saying that the Russian soldiers had done this to her. Turns out it was actually by the Azov Battalion in Mariupol. And it's, it's actually the Russians who discover, discovered her, that this was going on. Like The truth is finally starting to come out, and people are able to kind of realize it. And I think that is why you're seeing this backup. And yet you still have a major PR campaign going on uh, to discredit anybody that speaks out against it. And and it's sad and it's shameless because it really is hurting the people of Ukraine. But, you know, may the, may the blinders come off and those of us that have been demonized for trying to speak the truth and actually help people, maybe, maybe we might, you know, we might get a, a little bit of a, a reprieve. Um, but once again, all of this has just been very shameless and it's sad to see that even, you know, 
the Hollywood takes it on and considers it to be a passion of theirs. Well, and you actually were talking about the torture and the rape of that young girl in Mariupol. We had last Friday, George Eliason, who actually has been on the ground reporting in Donbass. And he told us that Friday that he had been reporting and he had gotten word of that and then was actually at the scene and was uncovering it all. So, I mean, but but he's just a journalist that, you know, is in Donbass, but, you know, he's, nope, he's fake news. And it's just really sad when you have journalists that are just sitting there simply writing what they're hearing and writing what they're learning and immediately just called fake news. And once again, the Grammys last night, I hope everybody realizes when they praise what they're praising, they're praising Nazis. They're praising people that are going and doing this to women. They are praising the corruption that for the last four years we, you know, has been done within various political families in the West. And, and they're enabling. But yet, you know, we'll see how much longer this continues. But you're finding more and more when CNN and even MSNBC are now having to kind of come back out and say, no, um, that's not, you know, they're having to back off it. You're, you're seeing hopefully a change and the tide, because it was the PR war was the only thing the Ukrainians were winning. Personally, even taking out the Nazi part, and it's like, just as an average person, just a regular person, and your government is basically doing things to make your life miserable. I mean, whether you keep it in or not, it's still the same thing. We're using neo-Nazis basically as a knife in order to put it to the throat of Moscow. And I guess the question becomes, why are we doing that? Meaning, is Ukraine really that important to keep in the Western orbit that we're willing to pay for basically this kind of world recession and this um, separation of the world into these two um, separate parts? I mean, this stuff is going to cost, and it's going to cost all of us. I mean, from your standpoint, how do I, I experience this with a certain level of indignation? And my feeling is that if the American public really got it, that, look, your government has been doing things. This is a culmination of 40 years of geopolitical policy that's just hit the, um, hit the fan, which um, Joe Biden in office with this kind of recircling or reshaping of this kind of United States um, West and East relationship. How would you explain that to just a regular person in your city if you were talking to your neighbor and you were trying to get that across to them? How do you articulate that to them in a way that they get it at a gut level? And not to mention... We just approved sending $20 million to Moldova this morning. And that, in addition to the hundreds of billions to Ukraine. I mean, it's astonishing to me. Well, and I have this conversation. I had this conversation on Saturday at a uh, political party meeting that they had here in Tennessee. And one of them was like, oh, what was it like working for those Russians? Are you happy to be away from them? And I'm like, why? What do you think is going on over in the area? Well, this is happening. This I'm like. And I'm literally, I don't even have to say anything. I can just pull up when they would, you know, they brought up, like I said, they brought up the woman. Every single story that they've said, I've been able to bring up. And and it just takes the truth. It just takes the truth getting out, which is why I think it's so important that they've silenced the people who were telling the truth. Because as long as the truth wasn't being spoken, they could run with whatever narrative they wanted. And that was their whole goal. And recognize here in the West, it's not about Ukraine and Russia. It's about a bigger picture of the truth they don't want getting out there. And so it's real simple to do. It's like, you know, show me, give me your point, and I can easily counterpoint where the truth is on it. Why do you think it's involved? And why do you think that when America's solution has always been let's throw more money at the problem and it's going to work? Why do you think uh, it's going, it's going, they're using that same solution now when it never has? And I think one of the best things that came to my view last week that was said, and I, and I keep telling this to people, we in the West here 
and the Western pundits, the Western media keep looking at what is going on in Russia and Ukraine and applying Western military strategy to it and saying, oh, well, this just means because they're moving here and they're moving troops here and they didn't firebomb here and they didn't carpet bomb. Oh, that means that they're losing and that they're weak. That's my Western strategy. And guess what? Western strategy doesn't have any victories in their column these days. <laughs> so you want to apply Western military strategy, then you're going to be applying a losing strategy to it. What is happening is exactly what it is. In the long game, as long as this continues, Putin realizes that the West is going to move on to other issues and they're going to back off. And then he can actually get down to the business of getting things done. The same goals he was accomplishing, wanted to accomplish a year ago, five years ago to today has been the same things. And now he realizes that how, how much the rest of the world. But here's the other thing that I think the bigger picture in all of this is that you do have countries that I would not normally see as, you know, like Saudi Arabia and Dubai, other countries that might have aligned with the U.S., but they've realized how much the West has demonized Russia and how much they unified in all of the lies that were told to do that. And they're saying, we're not going to get involved. We're not going to line up with you because you could do that to us, U.S. You could do that to us, West. And so really what, you, what the, the West has done in the long term has done a lot of damage to its credibility because nobody's ever going to see them as an ally again, knowing that they this quickly can demonize Russia, who they have been an ally from, who, who they realize was on the side of the truth in this, then they can do that to anybody and there's no, there's no repercussions from it. And it's one of those things, Scotty, where, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get this, this one clip of, of Trump really quick where he talked about, you know, how the invasion of Ukraine would have never happened if he was in the White House. And a lot of people are looking at, you know, over the weekend, you had it where even former VP Mike Pence said, you look at the rate of what's been going on since Joe Biden took the White House. You know, you have inflation up. You have a crisis at our southern border that is completely underreported. Um, let's take a quick look, uh, listen to what Trump said over the weekend at a rally in Michigan. Let's take a quick 30 second listen. I thought he was negotiating. He had 150,000 soldiers on the border. I said, oh, he's going to make a great deal. He could have made a great deal. I believe when he saw what happened in Afghanistan, the way we ran. And, you know, when I was running that, 18 months, we didn't have one soldier killed in 18 months. And you've heard me tell the story. I spoke to, I spoke to Abdul. I said, Abdul, there's no more killing of our soldiers, Abdul. Well, you're going to be hit so hard, you're going to be hit harder than anybody's ever been hit. But why, but why, Your Excellency, do you send me a picture of my house? Picture of my house. Abdul, you'll have to ask other people that question. But you know what? He never, not one person was killed for 18 months and biden even said that he stood up he said well i have to say nobody was killed in 18 months at which case the television cameras were turn off those cameras they didn't like it when he said that he didn't like it but it's true 18 months and then we lost 13 but you know they don't talk about how horribly so many of them were wounded with the legs and the arms and the face and everything else but this invasion of Ukraine would never have happened if I was in the White House. Not even a chance would have never happened. Would have never happened. Not even, 
And I knew Putin very well. You know, they say, oh, he knows Putin. He knows Putin. Oh, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. I know Kim Jong-un. I know President Xi of China. And you know what? We had no conflict, remember? Scotty, your thoughts. I, I know a lot of people today are really, even though if they hated Trump, a lot of people really missing Trump right now. Your thoughts? Well, he's right, but it was not necessarily because of Trump. It's because I believe there would have been a peace deal between it. It had nothing to do with Trump. Um, it had, honestly, I don't think it was even Afghanistan. I think this was all that Putin realized that because when you put the same guy in that was in 2014 under the last coup that created instability within the region, uh, it was going to happen again. That just like son Bush had to finish daddy Bush's uh, work, the same guy had to finish his work from before. And that's where this was going to come in. And Trump was not going to allow that. Um, Trump actually was working on the deal to say, hey, listen, uh, can you give me all, you know, expose all of their, yes, did Trump ask Zelensky for all the dirt on, that had happened on the Biden family? Absolutely. And that's why there was never going to be an invasion there, because he needed that accountability that ticket was not going to be called on Zelensky to try to do this kind of aggressive means, that whatever they pulled on Zelensky was not going to happen under Trump. So my comment is that Trump's right on it. It's not necessarily because of Afghanistan. It's because they weren't, that the unfinished business of the Biden family, of that whole regime, that whole administration, was going to happen underneath the round two. And Putin knew he was going to have to stop it or at least show force uh, before it became too much that he couldn't even handle. Agreed. And there were multiple opportunities for this to not happen. And you have to question whether or not if Trump was in office. Look, Trump was more skeptical towards NATO, which is one of the things that kept hitting him on. Right. Oh, he's he's attacking our NATO nations. He's making us weaker abroad. He was more skeptical of it. And when he gets down to brass tacks, and like you said, he was trying to get information from Zelensky and everything else. The question becomes, would Trump have been strong enough to basically say, yes, we will take the deal of Ukraine not being part of NATO? And if Trump could have found some way around to get that deal, this doesn't happen. Let's not forget, Trump also was, did not like NATO. No, he did not. Like I said, <laughs> he, he was skeptical of it. End it. Yeah, he was very skeptical of it. And, you know, he would hit European leaders for not putting the money into it. And if you remember, he even brought up the point of, wait a minute, how is Russia this threat, but you guys are getting energy from it, which is basically the crux of the world as the way it's breaking apart as we speak. Look, I, I've said it before, maybe Trump was the better option. And it's shocking for me to even say that. And I say that purely because one of these guys is trying to start a third world war. Donald Trump seems to be far more skeptical of the issues of war. And so even though I think there are massive consequences for Trump to win an office domestically, from the standpoint of my responsibility to the world globe and stability in the world, maybe I was wrong. What is your thoughts, Scotty? Besides that Jamar was wrong. Which, which doesn't happen often, like 99.9%. But what's your, what's your thoughts, Scotty? We can enjoy that one. But the reality of this, all, all of this is, is recognized. Unfortunately, it's not also just about Ukraine. I mean, think about what has happened with these actions here in the U.S. and around the world. All of a sudden, we have the dollar is, is pretty much, not only are we no longer having the gold backing it up, which happened decades ago, now the dollar is about to probably not be recognized by most countries. And we're going to go back to, to this idea of something else being the world currency. This has probably been the number one. I mean, think about it. In the last month has probably been the biggest step towards the dollar being taken down off being the world currency that has ever happened before. And it has nothing in this conflict has nothing to do with the U.S. That right there is, is you have to look at that. And I have to think if the bigger picture is that the, the broader globalists, that was their goal all along. 
And so this was a great opportunity for it. And how much did the Biden plan, you know, fall into it? Uh, you go back to looking at the first week. Here's the other side. The first week, even before there was actually, you know, the West was going, there's going to be an invasion. There's going to be an invasion. The people in Kiev, they were still eating in cafes and going to work and going to school. They didn't think there was going to be an invasion. The people of Russia didn't think there was going to be an invasion. The same 100,000 soldiers that have been there for a year along the border, they were still where they were supposed to be, yet there were a lot more media cameras on it. But the one move that the U.S. had to do, we had to move our embassy. And we, we, when we moved our embassy, we also had to destroy all of our computers, our hard drives, and the IT in that embassy. And now we know that that, and as we've always said, and it now proves, that there was lots of corruption from both the Republicans and Democrats in Ukraine, where were those stored? Of everything we had to do, we had to move out of our servers and we had to destroy our servers. If that was not the original red flag, that we were, that there was a bigger picture and there was a bigger thing happening besides just the, the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, um, I don't know what else could have been. And you know, it's so interesting. Over the weekend, I rewatched the movie Argo um, that I haven't seen in a long time. And, you know, they they go through the whole history of how the United States was involved in a coup. And, you know, either way, when the Iranians are jumping over the fence and they're getting into the U.S. embassy, what's the first thing they do? They don't even talk about running out. They're like, get everything and burn it. Get everything and burn it. Um, and, they, and then the burners go off and they have to shred everything. So that just reminded me of, of what you said when they were like, burn everything. <laughs> um, but I kind of want to pivot, though. And I want to talk about, um, as some call her Raggedy Ann, um, the bride of Chucky, um, Jen Psaki. Um, and I want to play her clip really quick when she was asked about her role at the White House and whether or not she is taking a position on MSNBC, thus replacing Rachel Maddow. Let's take a listen. Jen, given the reports, which have now been confirmed by multiple media outlets, how can you continue to be an effective briefer if you do, in fact, have plans to join a media outlet? Well, I have nothing, again, to announce about any conversations or any future plans. Um, and at whatever time I leave the White House, I can promise you the first thing I'm going to do is sleep and spend time with my three- and six-year-olds, who are my most important audiences uh, of, of all. Um, but I would say, Kristen, that, uh, again, I uh, have done uh, have taken the ethics, legal requirements uh, uh, to the highest uh, very seriously uh, in any discussions and any considerations about any future employment, just as any White House official would. And I have taken steps beyond that to ensure there is no conflicts. And I understand what you're saying, but I guess the question is, how is it ethical to have these conversations with media outlets while you continue to have a job standing behind that podium? Well, there are uh, a range of stringent ethical and legal requirements that are imposed on everybody in this administration and many administrations past about any conversations you're having with future employers. Um, that is true of any industry you're working in. Uh, and I have abided by those and tried to take steps to go beyond that as well. And broadly speaking, is it the policy of this White House to allow staffers to have discussions, even if indirectly with institutions uh, that impact and affect their jobs and your job here? Well, the, it is the policy of this White House to ensure that anyone who is having conversations about future employment uh, does so through consultation with the White House Counsel's Office and by, and ensuring they abide by any ethics and re legal requirements. And uh, those are conversations that I have uh, taken very seriously and, and abided by every component of. Hmm. 
So they asked if you're just going to take a job and you immediately go to, I have abided by all ethical standards and requirements. You notice that, huh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I noticed that too. Scotty, your thoughts. <laughs> I mean, if anybody, I, God bless her. She, she stayed a year. Um, <laughs> I agree with her, but, but there's no doubt that she's headed to MSNBC. Uh, I don't think anybody's saying it. And she's got a very good point right now. And I, it's funny that the other journalists are going, hey, by the way, does that mean what are you doing in that trade talk? At least it's being open right now about it. Uh, the fact that she hasn't resigned her position, even if she's going to, she's going to need a break between the two. Uh, <sighs> You know, it's one of those that I, you go into this position as press secretary for the White House. You want to go in and you defend everything that the president does in his administration. It's kind of your job. It's kind of your role. So then how do you go from doing that to going into the media and expected to be an unbiased source? Are you turning on yourself? If you've already been able to be paid to be a mouthpiece and to push whatever your boss wants you to push, how can people trust you? Uh, to, to give a, a full picture of it. Well, the good news is her going to MSNBC is not going to be too much of a different picture from what she's been presenting at the White House. And, and to look at the other side, because many would say, oh, well, Kaylee McEnany left and she went to Fox. Um, Dana Perino, former G- uh, GW Bush uh, press secretary, she went to Fox. But the difference is, though, is that they don't have their own show. They're just contributors. So having your own show, replacing Rachel Maddow. You, never, you didn't say that part before. I don't think you did. That's a big deal that she's replacing Rachel oh, no, Maddow. No, no, I, I know. I did say it. But but oh. the point being, though, is that she's going to have her own show with with all of her insides. And, and again, it's Kaylee McEnany went after Trump was out of office. Then she went over to Fox News. This is during the same administration where you're still going to have the people that worked underneath you, alongside you, still in the White House. I mean, to me, that screams unethical. And by the way, likely coming on your show. Yeah. I, I mean, those are your contacts, right? And, and here's what you're missing. And the, and the difference, now, you're right. It has to do with when the president's out of office. But when it came from the Trump administration, there were two lines of thought. You either went 100% with him and you got a contributorship at Fox, or you were the first one to critique him and you got your contributorship at CNN, a.k.a. Alyssa Farah. I was going to say. That doesn't exist right now. Democrats are not that way. It, it's kind of staying marginalized. If you are, if you actually give Republicans any credit, and you're not on Fox, you won't keep your job very long. Unfortunately, right now, I feel like at MSNBC or CNN. Things might be changing at CNN, though. I'm going I'm to preface this, the old CNN. There are some new things happening at CNN that I think might be a little bit more of, of a positive of them getting back to where they originally came from. Uh, but that being said, that, that's the difference in it. And I agree with you. These are all your contacts. And right now, everything that is happening at the White House, for her to say, well, I, I, disclose, I step out of those meetings. I'm not a part of those meetings. Okay. If you really believe that, everything that she's going to say right now, um, she is listening intent and going, okay, how should she, if you expect her to critique the Biden administration once she has her own show on MSNBC, then you're in for, for a rude awakening. There's no way she's going to do that. And by the way, it's the nuclear option because she's taking Rachel Maddow's show, which is what, the highest show. I mean, she is the, the voice of the liberal Democrat in this case. And that's where she's basically going to be perched. And, you know, my mom brought up a great point. She just text messaged me and she was like, how much does Scotty want to bet that that question by Kristen Welker of NBC, a deviant of MSNBC, was actually set up so they don't get in trouble? Your mother's very smart. I I think she deserves her own show on MSNBC. In fact, I'd rather hear her voice. 100%. 
as we've already seen in the past, networks work very, very well. Um, and it's all about, look, we asked and she gave her disclosure and there you go. My question is, why is she even holding on? Because once, once that was disclosed to the public, your credibility was taken away. But more importantly, you're damaging yourself with your, your fellow journalists. Why not step down? So you know what? Because this is in my future, I'm going to take a few weeks off. I'm going to go spend time with my children and it's time for somebody else to step in. The only reason why I believe why she's still there is they probably, they probably don't have anyone to fill that role that they feel comfortable in yet. And that's where I think that the only reason, because there's no reason for her to be there. She's only hurting herself with her colleagues right now because they're not going to trust anything that comes out um, thinking that it's going to be fair. And let's be honest here. Jen Psaki does not have a journalism degree. She has a degree in public relations and communications, which is exactly what the job that she's doing right now. Yeah. She's a PR firm Probably for the White House. That's right. Yeah. Scott, Scotty? any last thoughts really quick? we got about 30 seconds. Last thoughts on it. You know, it'll be interesting to see the branding of it and how MSNBC distanced herself to give the idea that it's anything but a left-wing puppet piece for this administration. That it is not truly state. You cannot talk about state-run TV anymore once you give her her own show on MSNBC. That right there confirms who the state-run TV is in the West. Yeah, Jill Biden's starfish clap. Yeah, at Jill this point, Biden's they're not even clap. hiding it. You know, they're not even hiding the ball. <laughs> this one's straightforward. Scotty Nell Hughes, thank you very much. He's a political commentator and former host of RT, America's News Views Hughes. This is the end of another show. You guys are listening to Fault Lines. Thomas, Franzak. I want to thank our engineers. I want to thank our producers. And I want to thank all of you who make the show possible. My name is Jamal Thomas. Thank you. I'm Farron Franzak. And as always, folks, rumble.com slash fault lines. May the good news be yours. Fault lines.